The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Hello. The end of a year is a time for reflection on the achievements of the past 12 months, with both highs and lows worthy of assessment. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic and Marxist sea captain, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's presentation covers the best and worst films of 2022, for which my guest is Chris Arnsby, and you join us on stage in South Sea Civic Centre and Community Meeting Rooms. Hello, Chris. Hello. Well, it's the end of another uh, cinematographic year. Um, we've all become a lot uh, richer and more rounded and wiser as individuals. Um, I've uh, moved to the seaside uh, and... Uh, started the uh, cultural regeneration of my local community. I know that you too have been um, developing your crime-fighting skills. Exactly, and, yes. Um, yeah, that's, uh, you're doing very well hollowing out that uh, volcano that you're, you're mm. planning on converting. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean obviously, yeah, with any big DIY project, there's always a few snags, but uh, yeah, it's coming along nicely. Yeah, it's difficult getting a contractor for a job like that, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. But um, we've had uh, a very uh, culturally rich time watching all the new films that 2022 has had to offer. Um, So before I get into my top ten and bottom five of the year, I wanted to ask you about some of the films that you've seen that aren't on my list. Oh, really? Okay. um, Top of that list would be The Batman. I'm surprised you haven't seen The Batman. Um, I I have. It's just oh. not in my top ten of the year. Ah, gotcha. Sorry, wrong end of the wrong end of the stick. Right, I see what you mean. Yes. I, when did it come out? I, it seems like I was coming, when I opened the, the the Word document that I use to keep track of everything I've watched. I was surprised to see the Batman on there because it feels like that's quite an old film. Now was it sort of February or March last year? I think it was February. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it was just so long ago. Um, it was, it, I think it was virtually the first film that I actually properly went to see in the cinema since, you know, the assorted COVID excitement. Um, and it was in IMAX, so that was terribly exciting. I really liked it. Um, it any particular reason why it didn't make your top ten? Or was it just that there were ten better films for you? It was yeah. It was just ten, that there were ten better films. I really, I, I really liked it, and um, I did nominate it for a number of my awards, which I'll get into as, uh, hmm. as uh, it, we talk about the films. Um, I, I liked it as it, as a more character based um, version of the story because the Christopher Nolan films were very concept based, very thematic. This was looking at the hows and whys. 
what turns Bruce Wayne from being an instrument of vengeance into being a hero. And the film is that story. How, how does he learn to become something more than just a guy who murders criminals hmm. into the Dark Knight? And yeah. I, I think the, the trust that Warner Brothers showed him <laughs> almost unprecedented having had disaster after disaster with uh, the Snyderverse then saying, oh yeah, you can do whatever you want and letting him make a three hour Batman movie um, I think it turned out extremely well I think it was a very uh, well rounded um, story and yeah. it, it gave a much a much more engaging ground view version of Gotham than I think the Nolan films did. Those were much more high-minded and conceptual, and this is down in the gutter. Mm. Um, I thought Paul Dano and Colin Farrell were both fantastic. Yes, it's it, it's terrible. It's it, it's one of the, like I saw it at the time. I really liked it, but you know, you looked when I now look back at it with the perspective of kind of a year, I'm sort of going. Yeah, what was that all? I remember going into it with reasonably low expectations because it's Robert... I want to say Robert Patterson. Patrick, and I know that's wrong, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm thinking of the guy from The Terminator. Um, Robert Patterson. And obviously, of course, it's oh, it's the vampire from Twilight, blah 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 But he was brilliant. He looked far more comfortable in the Batman suit than... Um, Oh, ben Affleck. Ben Affleck, yes, yeah. It's going to be a long day if I can't remember anybody's name. Um, I just remember seeing, having being unlucky enough to see the Justice League film. Maybe it was that one. Oh. No, it can't have been. It was... Um, anyway, whichever one I saw. And I just remember Ben Affleck looking terribly kind of sweaty and uncomfortable. He didn't... Just didn't physically look comfortable in the suit. Um, and... Robert, uh, Robert Patterson, yeah, yeah, seemed to be having a much better time, a much better cast. Um, I quite liked all the, you know, I, I think it's always interesting with these things how they choose to shape the story. And if they hadn't had the whole Gotham is flooded sequence at the end where he makes the choice to become a hero and makes the choice to rescue people... Um, I think the film might have seemed a lot more sour, but for me, that was the point that really kind of turned it around. And it's like, no, 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 this bloke is Batman. This bloke is a proper hero. Yeah, that was that was the the element that I really liked. It was the the choice to embrace mm. um, heroism and selflessness rather than vengeance and indulging his own mm. hatred that's what elevates him to being a true hero. And I think that was uh, a great message. And I, and I feel it justified its running time as well. Yeah, I felt yeah. bored. No, and it's, I, rare you see a th- it's rare you see a three-hour film that feels like it needs to be three hours. Mm. Particularly no, this... one that's a, that's a big blockbuster because they, they end up being so bloated and overstretched these days. Um, uh, I mean, it was refreshing to see... Um, I mean, we might as well get on to it now. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness was was a lean two hours. Yeah, I mean, I I think it was far I'm less I'm less keen on Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness for some reason. Um, but it didn't feel again. It didn't feel particularly padded. But I do wonder if 
there's always this problem with a lot of these films where they feel obliged to come in at around the two hour mark to just offer value for money and I do sometimes wonder if maybe we'd be a bit better off dropping back to films with a running time closer to 100 minutes or 90 minutes but that's just not going to happen when cinema tickets are pushing towards 20 quid yeah I mean um, Marvel seems to be on um, tick over at the moment hmm um the last few have been fine, unexceptional, yeah. um, and Multiverse of Madness. I think it. I mean, we'll we'll talk about it later, but um, yeah, it it did pale badly next to everything, everywhere, all at once, which yeah, well, is yes. doing the same sort of thing, but in a so much more interesting and creative way. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at, at Thor: Love and Thunder as well. I thought, yeah, that's. It's fine. It's exactly what I was expecting it to be. It's another yeah. Taika Waititi Thor movie. It's got the humor in it, which is fine. It's got adventure. Everything about it was just. This is all slightly above average. Christian yeah. Bale, I thought, was a was an a weird choice to play the villain, but I thought took it seriously and yeah. was very good. Yeah, it's one of those. I, I think I've probably said this. I've almost certainly said this before because it's become my kind of go-to response whenever I whenever I end up having a conversation about Marvel films. If you go to see them at the cinema, you never come out feeling like you've wasted your money. They are always fine. They, they've got a base level of, that was fine. And Thor Love and Thunder just kind of washed over me again. I don't have any strong feelings about it one way or the other. It was, It was a it was a perfectly acceptable film, and I didn't feel like I had a bad time. But I suppose that's the trouble, isn't it? The, the danger with the Marvel stuff is that if you're not careful, it just all ends up settling into this kind of compost heap of, well, that was okay. And it's occasionally yeah. hard to sort of point at the stuff and go, no, that was exceptional. Um, going back to what we were sort of briefly saying about running times and stuff, the one film that does kind of sit in my memory in a in a good way was Avengers Endgame, where... I do remember going to the cinema to see that and everybody I remember standing in the queue and everybody was talking about the three hour running oh I can't believe this is three hours blah 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 I'm going to need everyone was discussing their toilet plan yo I need to go to the so I'll sit on this aisle here because it means that when I go I won't have to push past too many people blah blah and, they, and I just remember standing in the queue listening to people sorting out their toilet strategies and when the film actually started going Nobody nobody moved, is, is my memory of it. Everybody was actually genuinely engaged in the film and genuinely wrapped up in it, and it didn't... Like Batman, it justified its running time. Mind you, it must have been absolutely awash with piss by the end of the movie. Almost oh, certainly. I think, the, the, I think the, the queue for the toilets after the film finished, I think, stretched all the way back down to the lobby, but at that point, I just left, quietly left the building and, uh, and went home. It's... It's strange. I was never aware of how many people have bladder problems than when you look on Twitter when a three-hour blockbuster is released. People all saying, oh, I've got to go to the toilet halfway through. It's the... Yeah. Just go before and go afterwards. What the hell? I mean, see a doctor. (laughs) It's Jack... It was Jack Warner, wasn't it? I know I've quoted him before where he apparently used to judge the quality of films by how many times he had to get up and go to the loo while he was watching them. And the highest... um, Highest rating you could get from Jack Warner was that it was a zero P film. Well, a high rating from me depends on how often I fall asleep. 
Mm. <laughs> Um, the more the more times I fall asleep, the better the movie is because it shows I'm trying to stay awake. Whereas if I only fall asleep once and miss an hour in the middle of the movie, as I did with The Revenant, for example, oh, then see, I'm yes. really not enjoying myself, and I would much rather have a nap. Mm. I managed to fall asleep in The Phantom Menace, which, considering the film's sound mix, always strikes me as a bit of an achievement. I dozed off in one of the Transformers films, and I slept through the Annihilation of Chicago. Wow, um, that really—that's—that's that's my main memory of going to see the first transfer. Apart from, the, 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 I went to see the first Transformers film. It starts, I'm sure, with a voiceover that goes eons ago on the planet Cybertron, and I just remember settling back in my seat, thinking, "Ah, oh, this is going to be rough." Um, and then the film kind of started, and I just remember sitting there like an old person, going, "It's too loud." Um, what else do we have here? Um, films that. Yeah. Uh, You've seen that I haven't. Uncharted. It was... I just remember it being terribly bland. And it wants to be Indiana Jones. Um, but it's just incredibly flat. Uh, it just did, did nothing for me. Yeah, sorry, I don't, I don't have anything particularly inside of it. It didn't set the box office on fire, so far as I'm aware. And the reason is it's just not very interesting. If I look at my... Um my special box office chart here. Yeah. Um, I have a, I, I maintain a chart that uh, ignores all the Chinese grosses of films okay. because some things get released in China and some don't. So mm. I level that playing field and I remove anything that does very well in one market and nothing everywhere else, which removes okay. basically all Chinese films as well. So it, re- yeah. it tries to remove that bias and be a more global picture. Yeah. And Uncharted was the 12th biggest film of the year. I'm surprised. Um, it did better than uh, Fantastic Beasts, Elvis, Bullet Train. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a, a lot of people have got that kind of nostalgia for the game. I just remember it being... <sighs> there's a whole sequence at the end. Sorry, I, I, I'm back to the same thing again, of sitting here like a... Uh, yeah, sitting here like my nan trying to explain the plot of an episode of Blake 7. Um, and I just... I've seen it. I remember there was a bit at the end with an airship. And it was all supposed to be... T- it was just... Uh, it's just... I don't know. It, it's just very, very bland. What about Moonfall? Oh, that would... <laughs> I, I, I want to describe Moonfall as a terrible disappointment, but that's not really um, quite the right phrase. I've got a not real as funny fond- as you were hoping. Well, yeah, there's. I've got a real weakness for those. It's not um, Dean Devlin anymore, is it? He's got off the kind of cataclysm. No, it's train. Roland Emmerich. It's just Roland Emmerich these days. I've got a real weakness for Roland Emmerich films. I think I've seen. I think I've, I think I'm familiar with all of his works, um, and this. How do you make a film about the moon crashing into the earth boring? Uh, stu- stupid, I can live with because it's it's a film about the moon crashing into the earth, but it's just dull. Um, and it, 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 worse than that, it's it's silly in the wrong kind of way because you know the the film kind of plods along for twenty minutes and then somebody points at the horizon and goes, "Oh no, the moon!" and everything starts floating up into space <laughs> and there's a special effects and it just and then the moon sets again and everything crashes back to the ground. It's I I don't know. It didn't 
it didn't work. There's a whole baffling sub... Well, there's a whole baffling chunk to the plot about the moon being an alien artifact, and it's just overly, overly complicated. And I don't know when Roland Emmerich kind of lost the knack of um, making good, serviceable sort of disaster films, because he did... Day After Tomorrow was one of his, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I've got oh. his filmography here. I'll run through it for you. Yeah. So, um, Universal, this is ignoring his German films. Universal mm. Soldier, Stargate, Independence Day, Godzilla, The Patriot, The Day After Tomorrow, 10,000 BC. Okay, I haven't seen that. Or The Patriot. 2012. Yeah, man, 2012 is when he starts to go off the boil, I think. I was shocked by how much I enjoyed 2012. Yeah, I, I, on, on its on its own terms, I really had a good time. To be, to be fair, it's a film that I've I've bought on DVD and watched. The, the only bit that doesn't work for me with 2012, and it's obviously not a film that came out this year, so we shouldn't be discussing it too much. Is you have the chase through the city in the limousine as the city's collapsing around, and then you have the flight through the city in the light aircraft as the city's collapsing around them. It kind of feels like you should have one or the other, but not both um oh i see yeah you know it just feels a bit you, you basically back to back you have two action sequences that kind of hit the same sort of beats yeah maybe you because what, what comes after 2012 uh well he then he does his small personal film which was anonymous about how okay. uh, shakespeare didn't actually write all those plays oh and then uh, his his big flop which is a shame because again this one is surprisingly good white house down Mm, actually, I haven't seen that. It's th- it's th- it's the the lighter, funnier of the two Die Hard in the White House movies, mm. and I haven't seen the other one, Olympus Has Fallen. But White mm. House Down is really enjoyable. Yeah, I think it kind of just another, kind of... another small Sorry, personal film, uh, Stonewall, about the Stonewall riots, which completely okay. rewrites history and is apparently ah. abysmal. Independence Day Resurgence. Yeah, which was a, a shame that that missed the target. Yeah, and Midway. About the the battle, presumably. About the, about the Battle of Midway, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And his uh, his next project, alarmingly, <laughs> is a TV remake of Lawrence of Arabia. Wow. I almost yeah. don't I know mean, where to... So not just retelling the story as a TV series, but actually remaking the film. Well, a series about Lawrence... But mm. I don't know what else there is to say about him that hasn't been said in the film. Yeah, his life post-war, perhaps, but that's also mm. been done. I don't, yeah. I know, and I don't know what a filmmaker with the sensitivity of Roland Emmerich and his um, uh, fidelity to historical accuracy. I'm not sure what he can bring to it that Zack Snyder wouldn't be able to yeah. do. He does have it does seem to have a like, liking for sort of it, it, alongside just smashing everything up like a 6-year-old. He does kind of have a liking obviously for sort of alternative history films because as you say there's the Patriots in there um the Shakespeare one is in there the Stonewall one if you're what you're saying about that one sort of rewriting history so yes maybe this is the the real story of Lawrence of Arabia yeah 
I mean, maybe it's. I mean, given that. Uh, I mean, obviously, Stonewall is about uh, gay rights. Emmerich himself is openly gay. Maybe it's going to focus on um, Lawrence's mm. sexuality in a way that previous projects have skated over somewhat. Mm. And that's that's a position you could take. It might be good. It probably yeah. won't be, th- but. It, we'll see. I mean, probably yeah. no one's going to bother going near it because Moonfall was such a massive failure. Mm, it made a, it lost a spectacular amount of money, didn't it? Um, and there was something about the way that Moonfall, Moonfall was kind of made in a really weird way because isn't it one of these films that's got like financing from hundreds of different companies or so? Every it was like he went around and everybody kind of chipped in, and then it just it just died at the box office. It's. Uh, was uh, I think the most the largest part of its funding came from China. Oh, okay. And then equal parts from Germany and um, the US. Mm, and yeah. um, I think also Canada and the UK chipped in. And it wound yeah. up being the most independent, the most the most expensive independently financed film. Yeah. Of all time. Um. And uh, a massive bomb. Oh, it that's made a... tw- it, it made less than twenty million dollars in its in the US, and less yeah, than half not... its budget worldwide. There was the thing I've just sort of remembered is it actually there's something about the later half of the storyline um, where it's all about aliens attacking from space, and there's uh, there's a lot of stuff going on with rogue AIs and things, and. It felt like ideas that because because the plan with Independence Day, uh, Resurgence or whatever the, the the second film was called. Oh yeah, um, they were going to make a third film where you, they go to the aliens planet. And I there were chunks of Moonfall that actually felt like, oh, we're not going to use these ideas in Independence Day. I wonder if we can use them here. Um, and of course, ironically, then, as you say, the film lost horrible amounts of money and despite the fact that it's one of those films that ends with the most obvious sort of sequel baiting that you can imagine there's not going to be a sequel to Moonfall um so I guess they still won't get a chance to reuse those ideas no nope hmm I liked it a lot um better in in terms of that thing of you know putting films in, in order of how much I liked them uh, Get Out is obviously still uh, Jordan Peele's best film. Uh, nope slots in nicely in the number two slot because it's it's. I, I enjoyed it a lot more than was the other film called Us or Them. It was yeah. definitely a, yeah. Us. Us. That was. I knew it was a pronoun. Um, and yeah, very very visually visually lovely. A lot of very. You know, all the. Have you seen? You've seen Nope. I guess it just didn't make your top ten. Or, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And all the stuff with the chimpanzee, um, all very, very sort of weird and eerily creepy, and all the stuff with the strange monster and the design of the strange monster looked lovely. Yeah. I really didn't care for it. Um, oh. I, I struggled to understand what it was supposed to be about. I didn't... I, mm. I couldn't wrap my head around what Peel was trying to say with it because I knew this is clearly about something. It felt like it was about this, the um, commodification of spectacle. 
Mm. But there's so much other stuff going on and so much specific stuff. And it felt like it's just, here's lots of things. And it never mm. really connected together for me. Yeah, I can um, see that. I, and, and I, yeah. Yeah, you're you're right. The the design of the the creature is was really great, and the stuff with the monkey is is really weird. But then you have things like the the shoe standing on its tip, mm. and there's a lot of there's so much emphasis given to that, and it never really pays off or is explained or ties in with anything else. It's just here's a creepy thing. Mm. But, well, yeah, is it connected? Is it does it correspond to anything? No, and. I, I felt it to be really unsatisfying. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can I, I can see that. I, I think the the thing I struggled with was obviously you've got the you've got the plot thread with the chimpanzee on the T V show that goes rogue and just starts killing everybody. I don't see quite how that I don't know if that it feels like they're trying to draw a parallel somehow between that and the way that they want to exploit the other creature, but it's not—it's not clear. I—I I think the two went together because it's—it's it's a creature that everyone pays to come and see, and then is incredibly really? surprised when it turns on them and kills everybody. And the same with the—the yeah. the alien creature, which everyone's paying to come and see, and then it, it eats them. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah. But there's—but the same guy's in charge of both. The, the mm. guy who's in charge of the alien show is the survivor of the, the monkey attack. The monkey, yeah. And I thought, well, did he learn nothing? <laughs> Apparently not, yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've really been confused by the acclaim it's had. I've never really understood what it is about that film that, that people have really latched onto. I think part of it, 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 one of the things it does well that us fail to do, it explains a lot less. I think us really gets into the nitty gritty of oh well there's this weird plot to create clones of people and they all live underground and bloody and there's this under and and the more that that film revealed the more disappointing the film seemed to get us i think what well, one of the one of the thing one of the reasons that it worked for me was that it does hold back a little bit more on the actual explanation of of quite you know What's the creature? What's it doing there? But all that sort of stuff. But yeah, it it didn't quite. It 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 almost felt at times like it didn't quite. It didn't, as you say, it didn't know what its theme was. Um, and a lot of it depends that's on the... how. Sorry, go on. So that's the difference, I thought, because mm. us, it was very clear. I think what the theme was. Mm. It was about underclass. It was about. Um, the uh, the negative aspects of ourselves, mm. and although there is a lot of over explaining in the plot, I thought that mm. was, you could get away with it because the thesis of the film is very clear, and mm. the imagery and the ideas of it were so strange and unnerving and unsettling. And mm. Nope doesn't have that. It, it doesn't have the the. The the direct line into the subconscious, I think. Yeah, that I think it is the, the, the doppelganger story had. It is interesting because it is almost like an inverse, as you say. Us, the the kind of the thesis is is clear. Uh, sorry, the, 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 but the, the the plot is over explained. Whereas with Nope, it's kind of the other way around. The plot isn't quite so much explained, and, and the the thesis isn't 
yeah, they feel like mirrors of each other. Is is the point I'm clumsily trying to to grope, grope towards? And I think I think for me that made Nope feel like a more satisfying movie. But I can see how the reverse could also be true. Hmm. Okay. It depends what you want from a film, basically, at times. Hmm. Um, and Halloween ends. Hmm. Speaking of films that I felt slightly missed their own point, um, I quite liked Halloween ends, but it feels at the start you've got the you've got the kid who um, accidentally accidentally kills the. The, he's supposed to be babysitting he accidentally kills the kid he's supposed to be babysitting for and he narrowly escapes jail but is kind of shunned by the uh, by the town and there's there's meant to be a whole storyline isn't there I think about how the town makes its own monsters and you know that that the, they basically want want it. For, it read to me like that the storyline is meant to be that that it's Hadfield, isn't it? Yes. It's the yeah that Hadfield needs Haddonfield. another Haddonfield. That's it. Haddonfield needs a monster like Michael Myers, and so they try to turn him into the new Michael Myers. And then the plot of the film echoes that in that he literally meets Michael Myers and begins to learn from him about how to be that kind of horrible uh, bogeyman. But then it all gets very confused towards the end where he goes to kill Jamie Lee Curtis and then is... Is he beaten up? He's beaten up by her and he's lying on the floor and then Michael Myers comes in. And then he saves Jamie Lee Curtis from Michael Myers. And he's kind of given like the hero's the hero's death, but the rest of the film hasn't been setting him up as the hero, and it just again it just feels like it's slow. I, I know what I, it feels like they they've kind of missed their own point. Is the, the 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 closest I can come to explaining why I found it a bit dissatisfying. Um, well, at the risk of spoiling the film, my yeah. recollection is that he he doesn't die a hero's death. He deliberately kills himself, and f- to frame. Uh, Jamie Lee oh, Curtis. Oh, that's for it. it. Yes, of course. He turns up. He kills him, or he, he stabs himself too. But then he does end up saving. When Michael Myers comes in, he saves her, doesn't he? Because he attacks Myers. Oh, am I? <laughs> I don't think. I don't think it's because he wants to save her. I think it's because he is attacking. He wants to attack Michael. I haven't really right. revised the film since since I watched it, but I really enjoyed it. Hmm. Um, it uh, s- it nearly made it nearly made the cut for best adapted screenplay for me actually. Oh, okay. Because I was I, so impressed by how mature and complex the script was. There's some really really good the, the whole sequence where they go to the uh, it's the place with the swimming pool. I can't remember who they've gone to, but Michael Myers and the other and the the proto Michael Myers go together somewhere to to kill a couple of people and proto michael myers gets locked locked out of the house and it's just kind of what and there's this whole element of effectively michael myers teaching this other guy how to be him and i thought that those sorts of sequences were astonishingly creepy and really effective but 
I just kind of, I, I sort of, I, as I say, I kind of didn't quite understand what the film was trying to say at the end. It, it did feel like, it felt like it muddled its own message right at the last minute. I felt that what a main element of the story was that Michael's evil has poisoned the whole town. Hmm. Yeah. And the town needs a monster. It needs a monster. Create, yeah. It will create one in mm. in the absence of one. Um, and the story is about the, the town try, uh, led by Jamie Lee Curtis' character trying to exercise this mm. this evil within itself. And I suppose then the, that, uh, and then you have the, the the final sequence, which is literally Michael Myers' funeral, mm. um, with his with his body being uh, carried through town in this this funeral cortege, and then fed into a mincing machine, and you see yeah. his head getting all mangled and everything. So you know this really is the act, the absolute last film in the series mm. until they reboot it. Yes, obviously. I think I think maybe that's the thing. Maybe the, what what I as is typical with these things, having talked it out, it all starts to make a bit more sense in my own head. If you argue that yes, the the the, the town is creating its own monsters, I've got the Wikipedia page up, so now I've remembered that Proto Michael Mars' name is Corey. Um, yeah, there's a case for arguing that he is becoming the monster that the town wants him to be, except then that the point when. Um, I think Corey. I'm sure Corey helps him. Um, he stabs Michael Myers in the leg or something. I'm sure there's something he does that kind of distracts him. And you could argue that that's him tr trying to redeem himself. Yeah, I think it may, maybe it's not quite as sort of um, muddled as I thought it was. But you know, it's, it's, sometimes it is one of those things where you sort of need to talk it through with somebody before. <laughs> before. <laughs> so. I think that's uh, that's all from that list. So let's get on okay. to the top ten of the year. Yeah, sure. Uh, at number ten, we have three thousand years of longing. Um, this is uh, George Miller's new film, um, made during a, a break in Mad Max productions, and um, it's quite a change of pace. It's a Romantic fantasy. Um, are, are you aware of it at all? I recognise the name. Um, I don't think I realised at the time it was. I don't think I realised it was George Miller. Um, but obviously, he's one of these people that's got a terribly all over the place filmography anyway, because he was doing stuff like Babe at one point, wasn't he? Uh, no, he did Babe Pig in the City. <laughs> oh, okay. Just the sequel, right? Um, um, what 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 was it that particularly that um that you liked about this one? Well, it's it's the story of a um a, a professor with an expertise in um, the histology of stories and the way stories are constructed, played by Tilda Swinton, quite a sort of a, mm. a, a solitary person, goes to a a, a conference in Istanbul. Uh, finds a, a little uh, pot in a uh, a market, cleans it, opens it, and a genie comes out and offers her three wishes. The genie okay. played by Idris Elba. But because she knows about all this stuff, well, I know that there are all these pranks, I know that there are all these pitfalls, hmm. why don't you tell me the story of how you came to be in the, in the jug? So we have these two contrasting storylines of 
two people talking in a hotel room, and then this incredibly rich, beautiful, lavish uh, production of um, medieval um, uh, Levantine Middle East area, and over the course of the story, the two start to fall in love, and uh, it was a really strange but interesting engaging idea um that it's sort of looking at the way we use stories to define our own identities and splitting the story in this in this way and then there's a slightly awkward sort of fourth act where Hmm. um they travel back from istanbul and it's then present-day london and so we have sort of almost as though Miller is trying to sort of fill out the story because it's a, it's a surprisingly short film. It's an hour and three quarters, which these okay. days counts as short. Yeah. Um, but it's trying to expand on this idea of a relationship between a human woman and a genie, and do it in a way that feels emotionally real. Mm. Uh, and it it was it was I thought a really brilliantly directed film with a script that could have been a little bit better hmm. um, and I mean like as I said George Miller as you know he did Bay Pig in the City and he's done Mad Max and he's did the two Happy Feet films with the singing penguins yes I think that's what I was thinking of rather than Babe yeah it, it, it's a very eclectic selection of films isn't it but this, this seems to fit in perfectly with that and um, Lorenzo's Oil which yeah, is a, 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 a straight drama about um, parents trying to help their critically ill son mm. because M- Miller started out as a doctor, so it was something of, of great um, professional interest to him. And that it, it feels closest to that. It feels a very mature adult emotional film, um, but it has the intelligence of something like Fury Road, which has a, is a very complex, thoughtful film mm. disguised as an action movie. Um, and this is, I think, quite a, a thoughtful, intelligent story disguised as a fantasy romance between a woman and a genie. Yeah. <laughs> yes, when you um, put it like that, it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> and yet it was really good. And it was... Yeah. It, it also, it's set sort of, sort of during the pandemic because we okay. see characters with face masks and uh, Tilda Swinton's character is often wearing a face mask in public. But it's all quite nicely downplayed. So it never really becomes an element in the story. Mm. Um, but it was just nice to see, yes, this is, this is you know, grounded in the real world and real things that are happening to make it sort of a, 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 an easier in for the audience. The problem mm. with that, though, is that that is going to date real fast. Mm. Yes, that's true. In some ways, it's, it's like setting a film sort of in the, you know, some other big historical event, isn't it? Yes, it's always going to be tied to that particular moment. Yeah. Uh, my fifth worst film of the year was Spiderhead. Okay, <laughs> that doesn't sound very good. Um, is it a spider with the head of a man or a man with the head of a spider? Uh, it's the spider with the mind of a baby. <laughs> um, well, it's it's this year's other film directed by Joseph Kaczynski, um, um. who did Top Gun Maverick. 
three or four years ago now, and then it was mm. sitting on a shelf waiting for Tom Cruise to decide that it was ready to be released. And in the meantime, Kaczynski directed Spiderhead for Netflix, and it's a science fiction suspense drama about a group of uh, convicts on a facility on an island on whom mood-altering drugs are being tested. And the project is led by a um, Miami Vice-type scientist played right. by um, Chris Hemsworth, who looks he looks like he's escaped from Miami Vice. He's uh. got the, the suit with the, with the sleeves pushed up and he listens to Yacht Rock. And... Um, Everyone wears these these things on their lower backs that can inject them with all the, the chemicals. And it's it's also lots of psychological games. And it turns out to be that it's tests to see how these drugs can be used to interrogate people and in warfare and things like that. But it is totally incoherent. The uh. there, There's no consistency in terms of character because everyone is being drugged all the time. Hmm. Um it's a film that felt it was really plot-led. And the characters are just doing whatever the plot demands them to do, rather than yeah. the characters behaving like people, and then the plot follows what they do. Yeah, There just seem to be so many strange turns in the story. Like um, Even Hemsworth's character has one of these packs uh, glued to his back. And uh, okay. that felt weird, and the explanation we're given for that is weird and doesn't really make any sense, and it just felt like this is obviously something to set up later on. And it turns out it is, because um, these packs are so vulnerable that if you bump into a wall, you might get an overdose of something. Right, um, that, yeah. <laughs> as, has, as happens towards the end of the movie where there's a fight and Hemsworth gets punched in the, in the drug pack, and he gets an overdose on the happy drug... And he gets in his plane and flies off and flies into a cliff. And okay. this is filmed like it's at the back of a shot. And I described in my in my video review that it, it's like something out of a Roadrunner cartoon. Oh, so there's just this little puff of smoke in the background as as people are talking or something. It's, it is a bit like that. And that I, wow. I couldn't tell whether or not this was supposed to be funny or if it's mm. just incompetent. Um, yeah. It's, it's. I mean, I've seen very few reviews of it. I only watched this because Kaczynski directed Tron Legacy, which is one okay. of my favourite blockbusters of the last 20 years. I really, really like Tron Legacy. Mm. But almost everything he's done since then has been fairly dreadful. Um, and I had no interest in seeing Top Gun Maverick. I haven't seen it. It's not on mm. the list anywhere. You haven't seen it either. Nope. nope. It, I, I never uh, saw the original, so didn't seem to be a lot of point in seeing the sequel. I actually rewatched the original uh, quite recently, just to refresh my memory, because I haven't seen it in about 30 years. Mm. And it's absolute crap. Oh, okay. I, <laughs> that sentence didn't go the way I was expecting. I, I genuinely was, you expect, was expecting you to go, and it surprisingly holds up or something like that. Okay. Oh, no, it's awful. <laughs> um, it's, it's a real relic of 80s military worship. Oh, and right. A laughable masculinity. It's an absolute joke of a film. And um, I have absolutely no idea why people think that's any good or what possible justification you know they have for going to see Top Gun Maverick four or five times. The reason it made so much mm. money is people just kept going back to see it again and again. Yeah. But wow, I mean it's like there are you know, 
they've been holding their urine in too long and it's damaging their brains. It's poisoning them, yes, possibly. Uh, like neither of us saw Avatar: The Way of Water either. <sighs> Again, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't want to see the first one, partly because the first one was a three D film, and I never really much liked three D films. Um, I remember going to see The Hobbit and getting about halfway through the film. And the only version I could go and see of The Hobbit was the 3D version. And getting halfway through the film and just realising that I was finding it less irritating to watch a film if I just took the glasses off and watched it slightly blurred. So I was never going to be the, the, the best person to sort of judge the quality of Avatar. And Avatar 2... Man, why do I want to go and see three hours of something I didn't want to go and see last time it was out? But it's made like eight hundred billion trillion dollars, hasn't it? And now it's going to be nothing but Avatar films for the rest of time. I have a theory about why <laughs> Avatar's been so successful, and it ties in with the whole idea of not that Avatar's had no cultural imprint, but it's had no lasting impact on film mm. culture. Yeah that the Avatar movies appeal to the sort of people who watch ITV. That it's all very... It's very superficial. It's very bland. It's easily digestible. And people get conditioned into accepting this as the right kind of entertainment. That Avatar has visual spectacle and visual Mm. effects all over the place. And it's made by James Cameron, who's someone they know and who's made other things that have been good. Mm. And it's three hours long, so they feel like they're getting their money's worth. It's and, three, and, and also, the, but there's always, there's always that vague sense as well that the length of a film somehow makes it more significant. That if it's a long, if it's a long film, it must be important. Yeah. Uh, so Avatar has this sheen of being, oh, this is the pinnacle of entertainment, as long as you don't think about it. And people mm. are increasingly, I think, culturally conditioned not to think about the media they consume. Because if they think about Avatar for more than a few seconds, they'll realise how shallow and childish it is. Uh. In a way that's an insult to children's films. (laughs) And I've I've read a synopsis of The Way of Water, and it sounds like more of the same. I'm just for all its its technical wizardry and innovation, Mm. all of that, I just left thinking, why is any of this worth anyone's time? Well, I, I don't, not having seen either of them, I, I, I genuinely couldn't say. And it's not. What, what's currently Avatar is making ludicrous amounts of money, is or rather Avatar Two is making ludicrous amounts of money, and yet I don't, I don't hear anyone talking about it. I don't hear anyone online saying that there doesn't. It, it's fascinating. It's like I don't know. I, I don't quite. Or the thing there is, I mean, it's, it is a bit like Pauline Kael saying, oh, I can't, don't know how Nixon got elected, no one I know voted for him. Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah. It's, 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 it's outside our circles. Avatar yeah. has made, Way of Water, has made a huge amount of money mm. that you and yeah. I don't really know anyone who's seen it or seen it and enjoyed it. I think that just shows that we have very good taste in friends. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, there's. I, I obviously I want want to wholeheartedly agree, but I I, I also feel I should push push back slightly against any um, accusations of pseudo intellectualism. Um, but it's. I don't know. I just find it strange. 
I would normally I would expect oh I took my kids to see Avatar or oh I went to see it but and yeah I accept that yes I'm a I'm a I'm now what's that um Simpsons meme with Seymour Skinner going is it possible that I've grown so out of touch that, that or is it no it's the children that are wrong I'm aware yeah. in this scenario I'm Seymour Skinner but from my perspective it's it's like throwing a stone into deep water it's just it's just there's, there was a slight plop and it's gone and I just find that fascinating that apparently something can be simultaneously so popular and so invisible is that you know, when Star Wars came out, it was all over TV, it was all over, uh, you know, magazines, newspapers, every, you know, the local news was doing stories about cues to see Star Wars. There's none of that with Avatar 2, and I just find it peculiar. It's just like there's this remarkable thing that's apparently going on over there, and it's just not, it's just not discussed. I, I find it strange. The industry has decided that Way of Water will be massive. Yeah. Um, so so cinemas devote half their screens to showing it. Mm. It's shown in cinemas for months on end. We are told that the film is successful. We are. Yeah. The narrative is this film will be a hit. Yeah. And people are unfortunately no longer media literate enough now to disagree with it, and they just take it at face value. They go and see it. They find it. You know, seem passably entertaining. I, what I find is interesting is people who um, talk about having seen it or seen the first one, and then really missing it, really missing being part of the world, and assuming there's something mm. wrong with them. And and they, well, no, it means you're a fan of it. Are you that lacking in emotional <sighs> introspection that you don't understand what it means to be a fan of something? Have you Possibly. ever felt strongly about anything in your life? Do you even love your children? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, <laughs> just, just out of curiosity, I've just gone to um, the Empire web, the the, the 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 website for Empire magazine. I'm just I'm going all the way down. There's all the film news. There's there's nothing about Avatar, and I just find that. Well, there wouldn't necessarily be now because it's been out for a few months and it's not really doing anything. But I suppose, but you would assume that that there would be something about how it's still insanely popular or how James Cameron is making the next. I just, as I say, I just, it's just strange. It's just a thing that's, it's it's just a thing that's happening. Uh, And I don't. And like I say, it's the absence of any kind of cultural... It's almost the, 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 the emptiness around it that I find more interesting than the film itself. And there's some... I, I wish I could remember where I, I read this because I'd love to be able to give credit to the person that pointed it out. But James Cameron made Titanic in 1997, was it? Yeah. 98? Yeah. 97. So that's what? 25 years that he's been doing nothing but making Avatar films. If you look at the, the if you look at effectively the period from ninety, you know, look at all the films he made from uh, from Terminator, and then you look, and then Titanic comes along. It's a screeching heart, and after that, it's nothing but Avatar. And again, I just find that I suppose it's one of the things where I just kind of what you shrug and go, if that's how you want to end your career, that's that's fine. <laughs> but it, it seems it just seems odd. I'm looking at Rotten Tomatoes, and um, 
Way of Water has an audience approval rating of 92%. Mm. Yeah. Everything Everywhere All at Once, the huge, you know, massively popular film, everyone who saw it loved it, 88%. Yeah, interesting. I would. I was gonna. I was expecting you to come up with a bigger kind of gap between the two. To be honest, yeah. People are being increasingly conditioned to go to the cinema for empty spectacle. I suppose and to so. Assume that uh, that good in inverted commas serious films will be on streaming services or be in the form mm. of a television program. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes it isn't. Spiderhead was made for Netflix, and it's a load of a load of old shit. Mm. Um, but the assumption that bigger is better is being peddled by studios who are mm. so frightened that people won't go and see their crappy films anymore. Um, someone else pointed out, I think, that in 1989, The Little Mermaid and Dead Poet Society grossed almost exactly the same amount at the box office. And okay. today, The Little Mermaid would be relentlessly pushed to gross a billion and Dead Poets mm. Society would be dumped on Netflix. Yeah, that's true. I suppose in some ways it reminds me a bit, it's uh, one of the William Goldman books where he talks about 1982, and he says that 1982 is apparently going to be a terrible year for films. Um, and he talks about the way that film executives at the time were sort of uh, almost scared because they didn't know what the audience wanted. Um from an external perspective that's kind of it it does kind of feel like people are going well we don't know what do people want they want long films and endless sequels so here we are and and to fair play to them people do seem to want long films and endless sequels so yeah they want the same slop that they're served with over and over again which is why itv churns out all these identical bland visually ugly two-hour detective series. Um, the Inspector Morse franchise is finally coming to an end after 25 years because I think the writer's dead. I was going to say, um, every, everybody connected with it must be dead by now, surely. Did you know that uh, Endeavour, the, uh, the, the young Morse series, every episode had the same writer? Wow. I mean, it must be no. so boring. <laughs> It's funny, isn't um, it? But then, but I mean, IT, I find ITV almost completely unwatchable because it 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 asks so little of its audience. And boy, does it get it! Um, yeah, and Anton Deck can fuck off as well. Yeah. Well, that's like, the pro- that, that that's often the problem. Yeah, it's it's fun. Again, I, I suppose I'm not wanting to turn this into a general kind of state of the culture round. I certainly, you know, there wasn't ITV was always a bit a bit, a bit light and a bit trite. And but but there were there were you know it was capable of doing more serious stuff as well and it, again it was a bit like the attitude that you saw from some of the film producers in the olden days where they would make you know two films for the audience and like one film for themselves for want of a better phrase you know and and the film yeah. that they made for themselves would be the one that they kind of pinned their hopes on and. <sighs> But they just seem to have shuffled past the making one for themselves stage now. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I've got a list of films coming up in the next year that um, I'm interested in seeing, and there's basically nothing that's sort of mid-range. They're all mm. either 
you know the next installment of a big blockbuster series I'm fond of, or mm. uh, an independent movie that I've heard someone's making. Okay. There's no like forty million dollar cinema releases now. Well, yes. I mean, this, this is a this is the common uh, complaint, isn't it? Is that everything's either low budget or high budget, but that kind of middle of the road. Like when we were talking about one hour photo a while ago, and that was what twelve million to make. It wasn't horribly expensive, yeah. but that's the kind of stuff that doesn't seem to get made because nobody knows how how well they're going to perform, and margins seem to be so tight on stuff that they can't even afford for a £12 million film to flop. So they don't make them. They just shovel all the cash onto the expensive stuff. Um, because, as you say, yeah, they, they, they at least have momentum. Well, speaking of small, obscure things that uh, no one watches, um, my number nine film of the year is Mad God. Okay. Good title. Um, yeah. It's... <laughs> it's one of that very broad genre of uh, stop-motion animated, silent, experimental science fiction fantasy horror. Okay, yeah. It's not a crowded um, genre. <laughs> no. It's, uh, it's a thin shelf in uh, the old blockbuster. Hmm. Um, it's directed by Phil Tippett, and it's... Uh, well, the actual story is somewhat open to interpretation, but it's set in a world that where it appears... God has turned against his creation. And oh. a figure described only as the assassin, wearing a trench coat and gas mask, ventures into the bowels of the earth through various horrific hellscapes uh, to try and destroy it with a bomb before he is intercepted by forces in there for their own experiments. Um, I found it really compelling, mm. really uh, magnetic in the level of detail, the level of thought and care that has gone into the whole thing. Tibbet has been making this film for 30 years. Really? Good um, And the the creation of all these bizarre, horrifying surroundings is... The idea that it's all poured from one man is quite frightening because it's so <laughs> horrible. So you have, you have people being endlessly electrocuted and they're uh, feces being collected and put into a machine that then stamps them into humans and then the, and then the, the poo humans wander off um, and everything is torture and suffering and agony because of this uh, like uh, eons ago God decided to wage war against humanity and uh, turn the world into a waking nightmare and it's, it's sort of Starts to t towards the end, it turns into two thousand and one, but almost in reverse, with these monoliths being spread out into the universe of God spreading His poisonous hatred to the rest of the universe, and uh, um, trying to annihilate His own creation and everyone in it through the most agonizing means possible. Um, there's some bits of live action. Alex Cox appears. Hmm. Um, as the uh, the assassin's superior, um, but um, it made me think of the thief and the cobbler. Mm. That was Richard Williams' planned masterwork to show his total control over the medium of hand drawn animation, and Mad God is Phil Tippett's masterwork to show his 
control over the medium of stop motion. It's incredibly well made, but it's so dark and so horrible Mm. that I can understand it not being wildly successful. Yeah, it sounds intriguing. But it's yeah, it's it's really interesting. Mm. Um, the the deliberate choice to have no dialogue, and oh, okay. yeah. to li- to leave the background quite vague, means that mm. there's a lot of interpretation. There's a lot of mythological and theological stuff you can read into it. Yeah, um, Tippett has said that the Mad God is actually his own imagination from which all this stuff has sprung. Mm. Um, but um, it's it's a it's a tight eighty minutes. It's available to view on Shudder, the horror-based streaming service. It's also um, available as a digital rental, and I think it's now out on disc. Okay. Um, for those who want to buy it sight unseen, which I don't think I'd recommend, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but it's a really unique uh, production, and I was really impressed by it. Number eight on my list, in contrast, is one of this year's big um, Oscar pictures, uh, which you haven't seen, and it's The Banshees of Inner Sharon. Oh, yes, yeah. Now, I've heard people say very, very good things about it. You will now continue to do so. Yeah, <laughs> which is all the kind um, of thing that makes me think that maybe I should make some effort and actually watch it. Uh, well, I, I thought it was terrific. Um, it's the story of two men living on an island off the Irish coast. Um, Patrick, who is a uh, a farmer, and he and his friend Colm meet every afternoon to shoot the breeze outside the pub over a pint of Guinness, and one day Patrick turns up and Colm says, sit somewhere else. Hmm. And it turns out Colm has, has just had enough of of Patrick. Patrick is a, a, a simple, straightforward man with simple, straightforward desires in life. He is quite boring right. uh, and quite limited in his worldview. He's not a bad person by any means. He seems you know, generally very nice. And Colm said, no, this isn't personal. I don't want to be cruel. I don't want to hurt you. But I don't want to waste the rest of my life in conversation with you when I could be doing things that actually are worthwhile for me, which for me is writing and performing music. And it's shown that he's a very talented violin player and he plays with people in the pub and he's much loved and he's writing music as well but Patrick won't take no for an answer he he doesn't understand mm. why this won't continue and what had been a friendship dissolves over the course of the film and sours and curdles into animosity and outright hostility as their lives change as the supporting characters are changed by this ongoing conflict. Um, it looks as though it might be a winner at the Oscars for Best okay. Picture, which would be surprising because Martin McDonough's previous film, uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, also won Best Picture, and I can't remember the last time someone has had back-to-back Best Picture winners. Okay. Um, but it's it's brilliantly acted by this huge ensemble cast um, uh, Kerry Condon and um, Barry Keegan won BAFTAs for their supporting roles as Patrick's sister who is uh, sort of more intelligent and outgoing and 
um, is planning on moving to the mainland to get a job in a library. Barry Keegan plays the son of the local guarder, who is abused by his father and also a bit... Uh, how can I put this politely? I don't want to say simple, um, but has a very specific view of the world. Mm. Uh, and he, he and Patrick become closer friends, but it's also partially because he wants to get closer to Patrick's sister. Um, the photography of this island is absolutely gorgeous, and it, a lot of the time it feels like a play because it, it is so character-based. Mm. And a lot of it is it's just people talking. There's very little action, and there are nods to Irish mythology within scenes. And the main crux of the film, which someone had to point out to me because it didn't really occur to me at the time, it's almost an allegory for the Irish Civil War, which is happening over on the mainland. Because I, I don't think mm. I mentioned this, the film is set in the 1920s. Okay. Uh, about these, these two friends who they refuse to compromise over their future. And as a result, that, that turns into hostility and violence. And so occasionally we see these puffs of smoke and distant explosions on the mainland where the fighting is ongoing and it's not really touched the island at all because the population's so small and no one can really be bothered. Huh. But there, there is that element that it's, you know, it's turning brother against brother and no one is going to back down, no one is going to compromise. It's a film of great humanity and great sincerity and... I think it's very, very good indeed. It's an amazing cast, great writing, great direction. Really, really good. Mm -mm. So the fourth worst film of the year... Yes. Oh, dear. I mean, we're really getting into the... I mean, the, the absolute dregs. I mean, what's less than dregs? Hey, well, um, that's a good backwash. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, that's what... <laughs> that was the... That was what um, Joe Lysett, uh, how he described the um, remaining candidates for the Tory leadership. <laughs> he, he, did, he did describe uh, Liz Truss as the backwash of the Tory party, and that was before she had to resign. Mm. Um, I think it's going to have to be Don't Worry, Darling. Okay. Um, directed should... by and co-starring Olivia Wilde. Yes? No, I was thinking I should start trying to guess what the films are based on the title, but that might... Per but this sounds like some kind of light romantic comedy. With what kind of setting, do you think? Ah, I don't know. 50s, America... I imagine it as being all vaguely sort of pastels and, um, you know, set against the background of the uh, um, Eisenhower administration or something. You're, you're absolutely right in terms of the setting. Okay, um, <laughs> okay I'll take it. Uh, yeah, it does sound like a you know like a Doris Day mm. thing. Um, it's set in the desert town of Victory, where every day the um, the men folk go off to work. They go to uh, work on the Victory project, which is uh, something that they can't really talk about at home. And the women stay at home, and they clean the houses, and they cook the meals, and they go to ballet classes, and everything is all very nineteen fifties. Um, but then a series of weird things happen, and our lead character, who's called Alice, okay. uh, suspects, suspects there's something weird going on, and um, 
she starts to confront the Victory Project's leader, who's played by Chris Pine. And um, the, 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 the film winds up... When I described the idea of the movie, mm. and, not even, and not even having seen it, but just the concept from the trailer, I was describing it to my mother, and she said, oh, it's the Stepford Wives then. <laughs> and I watched it, and I thought, well, no, it's the Stepford Wives crossed with the prisoner. Okay. Because of the because of the town and everything, and then I yeah. thought about it a bit more. I thought, no, more specific than that, it's the Stepford Wives crossed with the remake of The Prisoner. Ooh. For very specific reasons, which you'd understand if you see the movie, but yeah. don't because it's terrible. <laughs> um, it's an incredibly shallow, self-important piece of work. Um, it's very it's high on the scent of its own farts uh. in terms of how important things are. Oh, it's about the oppression of women. I thought, well, yes, these are all serious topics that should be taken seriously, mm. quite right. Um, but the film feels like it was written by like a machine. Like it's you know one of, yeah. the, one of these AI scripts that's been churned out. Yeah, um, yeah. It's full of incidental details that don't make any sense. There's a bit involving... Alice seeing a biplane crash in the distance over the desert, which is never explained. Oh, is it finding? Is it one of these films that's vaguely like a, almost like a? There's, it's full of like image. It's almost like you're you're expected to decode it or something. It's like, oh, what does this image mean, and what does this image mean? Is it sort of that sort of thing? Possibly, yeah. Yeah, but not interesting um, enough like, to actually make the effort to decode it. Yeah, because the, the the resolution of the story is so banal and so uninteresting and so uninsightful. It doesn't say anything that people haven't said a dozen times before in, in better projects. Yeah. Um, I, I did think that Chris Pine was good, essentially playing a kind of um, cult leader, community head... Um, Jim, almost like a, a cross oh, Jim Jones. Don Draper. And, sorry, Jim Jones, the um, Jonestown yeah, yeah, guy. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say like a like a cross between Don Draper and Jim Jones. Mm. Um, and Pine is naturally very charismatic and naturally very charming, and he's a great choice for that for that character. Yeah. But the film has so little to say, and is so absolutely convinced of how little. That is being so incredibly important and in- intelligent and insightful. Mm. It's it's really quite embarrassing. Ah. And then when when things are revealed at the end of the movie, it makes so little sense. It's so badly thought out. If you've seen the remake of The Prisoner, or you just look it up, or you just look up the plot of this movie, <laughs> you'll see that yeah, there is an explanation for what's going on. That you think, oh well, yeah. If you think that through and make it work, that could work realistically. But it's mm. so badly thought out, and makes so little sense. Um, it's just a real slap-together mess of a film that at one point was being touted as a serious awards contender, and is now almost completely forgotten, apart from all the behind-the-scenes scandal that was going on. Oh, okay. That doesn't sound good. Um, which was, was, yeah, there's, there's, there's all kind of stuff involving people working on the movie that 
and their personal lives and things, which uh, I didn't mention in the video yeah. review either because that's that's irrelevant. That's something. Yeah, else. yeah, yeah. Um, but that's the only reason this film's going to be remembered. Uh, number seven on the good list overall is one you've seen. Excellent. I'm contributing. Glass Onion. Oh, I'm I'm slightly surprised it's as low as number seven, to be honest. I really enjoyed this. I thought this was was terrific. I really liked it as well. I mean, I I named uh, Knives Out as my film of the year Mm. uh, three years ago. And so I had very high expectations for Glass Onion. And this was actually the last film I saw in the cinema in London before I moved out of the city. So it was nice to put a cap on it with that. Um, And I felt the film was like a magic trick. Mm. That here here, you're being shown all these things and despite having seen and remembered the first film, I fell for it again. Yeah. Um, And I think unlike something like Banshees of Inner Show, and the film here is very... I mean, it is a mystery. Mm. Um, It's set set mid-pandemic, and I think the pandemic setting is important Mm. for the the plot, and it, it illustrates character as well, that these various disruptors and influencer types... Receive this puzzle box from Miles Bronn, who is an Elon Musk type. Mm. And it's, they managed to decode it, and inside it is an invitation to his private island for a weekend away in the middle of the pandemic. And when they get there, noted amateur sleuth Benoit Blanc is also there, having also received an invitation. Yeah. And it turns out there's going to be a murder mystery weekend um, with uh, Bronn staging his own murder, and the others have to solve it. And the gag is that <laughs> Blanc. Manages to solve the murder before it's been committed. <laughs> yes. Um, but then um, something else happens, and you know, fingers are pointed, and there are flashbacks and flash forwards, and it becomes very complex and yet totally coherent. Mm. It is su- it is a very complicated film, but because of the way, because of the care and attention to detail of Ryan Johnson as writer director, you are never confused about what's going on and I think that's that's the, the brilliant part because I've seen so many murder mysteries where I have no idea what's happening and here yeah. it was absolutely clear as things were being revealed and I was kicking myself for not picking up on things, for thinking that they were mistakes when actually they were deliberate all these things and it meshes together perfectly to create a story about how rich people are stupid and shouldn't be allowed to do all the stuff that they get to do yeah yeah, no, it's true, and it's interesting. Uh, there's there's a bit towards the end where it basically it, it's. I, I think it, yes, obviously the, the the inspiration for the the main character is Elon Musk, but there's a couple of moments that vaguely touch on some sort of slightly Donald Trump stuff as well. The the bit that always sticks in my memory is the point right towards the end of the film where it looks like sort of the good guys have lost because Elon Musk's substitute gives this great long speech about, oh yes, and who heard me sort of say that? And the rest of the disruptors all kind of look sheepish and nobody's willing to speak up about him. But then when the glass onion has been destroyed, everyone suddenly starts speaking up and starts saying, oh, well, no, you know, I'm going to testify about what I saw. And it's... What it reminded me of was um, the Capital Insurrection. It wasn't until after that, when there had been this obvious terrible event that Donald Trump had endorsed, 
that all the people that had previously endorsed him and had allowed him to do the stuff that he'd been getting away with, they also oh, and now we've got an excuse to break away from him. And it was after that that he got banned from Facebook. It was after that that he got banned from Twitter. And I just, uh, you know, I, I, at least I saw the parallel there between sort of the treatment of Donald Trump after, um, after the uh, invasion of the Capitol and the way that the, the bad guy in Glass Onion is treated. And it kind of vaguely, it's like, um, it's like don't look up done right, if that makes any sense. <laughs> you know, don't look yeah, up is... It so, was so convinced of its own cleverness. And look at us, we're doing a satire of the Trump administration and nasty alt-right people. And, and, it just, and, and in the end, don't look up, is just nothing. Whereas Glass Onion is a much more effective satire of, of that whole sort of group of people and that whole movement, but also manages to tell us a, an interesting story at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's a satire and it's mm. a murder mystery that's really cleverly constructed yeah. and really engaging and it's a comedy and it's really funny yeah yeah and like i said that the like blanc solving the murder mystery that it doesn't really add anything to the overall story it's just no. showing it's showing the character dynamic that blanc is by far the cleverest person there mm. and that and and then feeding in other ideas about where the Elon Musk character gets his ideas and how clever he is. Mm. And it does all feed back together very cleverly. So maybe everything develops character, it develops plot. Um, and we get to see a bit more about Benoit Blanc. We find out more about his him as a man, which I think what was, was interesting, and how yeah. he's really he's really struggled during the pandemic because he's mm. completely cut off from any mental stimulus. Yeah. It's interesting as well what you were saying about uh, 3,000 Years of Longing, where the pandemic elements in that film are liable to date it, whereas the pandemic elements in Glass Onion, they don't feel so much like... It doesn't make it so much of a historical document because they're, they're much more essential to the film and to the characters. Yeah, it's like I've said about Dad's Army in the past. You know, Even though it's, it's set at a very specific time, it doesn't feel dated because it wouldn't mm. work without that setting. Yeah, Glass, Glass Onion has to be set in the spring summer of 2020. Otherwise, yeah. the story doesn't make any sense. Whereas, yeah, Three Thousand Years of Longing could be set at any time in the last 30 years or so, give yeah. or take. Um, but it has that pandemic element in the background, which I think was kind of forced on the production just because of how they were filming it. Mm. Um, but even then, the pandemic is woven into the story. Like when they, everyone arrives on the, the beach, the way they're all behaving in terms of distancing and that kind of thing. Yes, again, it's a character, character point, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because some people because, are being very careful to socially distance and other people, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, Blanc is he's distancing, he's got a mask on, sort of a very natty Paisley style because he's a, he's a gym dandy. Um, mm. But he's being sensible. Someone is wearing theirs with uh, just the mask over their chin. Someone's wearing a mesh mask. Someone is actually wearing one properly, but it's without their nose covered. Uh, a couple of people aren't bothering with one at all. Yeah. And it's all. And then, <laughs> then you have Ethan Hawke coming out, saying, "Oh, don't worry, I've got this special spray yeah. that we can spray in your in your throat, so you, so you don't have to wear masks at all." And um, Blanc says, "Um." Is is this fine? Oh yes, don't worry, it's fine. Uh, what's it made from? You don't need to worry about that, sir. 
yeah, but I do worry. Oh, you don't need to worry about that, sir. And it's okay. It it feeds into the ideas of of uh, the 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 Edward Norton Elon Musk character of him being this great mm. innovator. It gets around this plot element. It's all it's it's so cleverly constructed. Everything is thought through in such detail. I've named this best adapted screenplay for the year. Best ad- um, adapted from characters created for Knives Out. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. A lot of people seem to um, have difficulty with the idea that it, that it was an adapted script, but it's based on pre-existing characters. So, yeah, even no, though it's not, a, that, it's, yeah. it's not it's not a sequel to Knives Out because you can mm. watch them in in either order, yeah. but um, the character pre-exists. But yeah, I I really liked it. Yeah. Um, number six of the year is another Oscar contender. Um, the Whale. Oh um, yes, I've heard I, again. I, I've I, I'm vaguely I'm vaguely aware of its existence. Um, Moby Dick, isn't it? Or am I getting confused? No, well, I am getting confused. Not really. It's a film about an extremely obese man. Oh God! Who... You see, now I feel bad about making the Moby Dick reference. No, that's okay. That's okay because that you're, that's it, the film is deliberately pointing you towards making the wrong assumption. Ah. So don't feel bad. Um, an extremely obese man who teaches uh, English courses online over Zoom, but with his camera switched off. And he has a friend who comes in to look after him every day, and he is trying to repair his relationship with his estranged daughter after he left her and her mother years ago um, to start a relationship with one of his students. And Brendan Fraser plays the lead role under Mm. a lot of prosthetics. Um, it's directed by Darren Aronofsky, and I've got a bit of a mixed history with him because um, The Fountain and Black Swan I thought were both fairly rubbish, but The Wrestler and Mother and Requiem for a Dream I think are, are amazing films, and I think this is another of his amazing films. Okay. Um, it's based on a play, and the entire f- the whole film is set in the main character's flat, and it's a very humane story of this character the nature of of what the title means of what the whale is has a lot of interpretations over the story you're deliberately pointed towards thinking that it's just an insult towards our main character Mm. but he has this essay that he keeps with him about moby dick and it's relatively straightforward but quite um insightful and quite sort of engaged essay and that a couple of times in the story he thinks he's about to die and he has someone read the essay to him so that it's the last thing he'll hear and it turns out over the over the course of the story that the essay was actually written by his daughter and the the white whale that he seems to be after is the relationship with his daughter which he desperately wants to repair even though she resents him for walking out on her. Right. Um, the, 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 the give and take between the, rela- the characters is so well illustrated and so believable. It's a film th- 
constructed on the backs of extraordinary performances. Um, I've instituted a new rule this year. I'm having gender-neutral acting awards. Okay. Um, so instead of Best Actor, Best Actress, Supporting Actor, Supporting Actress, I'm having Leading Performance, Leading Performance, Runner-Up. Mm. And on each level, sourced from ten nominees. And Brendan Fraser is my runner-up for Leading Performance, and Sadie Sink, as his daughter, is Best Supporting Performance of the Year. Okay. It's a hard film to talk about because... It's so much of it is in the experience, so much of it is in the emotion, so much of it is in the the mood and the tone of the, of the of the thing. Mm. And a lot of the time, you're not being given all the information you need. It does that thing that I always like, which is giving the audience enough clues to piece it all together yourself as you're watching, but never yeah. being explicit. Um, or at least letting letting you do that and get get ahead of the film later telling you. So um, specifically that the student for whom uh, Charlie left his family turns out to be male. Okay. And Charlie's sexuality is um, a matter of some debate. And the, the friend who comes to care for him, played by uh, Hong Chao, and they have this friendly yet combative relationship and she loves him but also kind of resents him it turns out that um, uh, his partner was her brother and then there's this whole other element comes in that there's this Christian revivalist sect from which both uh, she she and the brother were members and the the religion element and there's this, this is like Jehovah's Witness type guy who keeps coming to the door and wants to save Charlie's soul. And there's all these other elements and all this, this pull and push and give and take of the characters. And it's so hu- humanistic and so compassionate. Yeah. Um, Charlie is determined to kill himself. And the, the reason why he is obese is the whole backbone of the character. It's not simply some idea of weakness. It is much more complex than that. Mm. Um, the film has been accused of fat shaming. I don't think that's true. Mm. And as someone who is overweight myself and who is conscious of his own weight, I feel like I'm more qualified to talk about this than than others. Perhaps mm. I did not feel remotely insulted by the film because it's talking about these very specific situations, these very specific environments, these very specific stories. We all have our own story as to why we are the people we are. Yeah. Charlie has his own story for why he is so overweight and why he wants to kill himself. Um the film is about a person's choice and about the choices they make in their lives and how that reflects back and how that impacts things and how they try to compensate for them. And I really engaged with it. I really loved it. I think it's an absolutely fantastic film. I'm glad you agree. <laughs> Sorry, I always try to I always try to leave these nice pauses for, um, but but the difficulty occasionally is picking the right moment to to remain silent. But yeah, no, it's it sounds. Um, 
as you say, Aronofsky's an, an odd... <sighs> polarising is probably the easiest cliche to reach for, isn't it? Because uh, I'm interested what you said about... Um, uh, yeah, the films that you do and don't... Um, do and don't like of his because I think I saw Requiem for Dream and I thought it was a bit rubbish <laughs> but it was it, I again it, I think that's the thing there's no such thing as a mediocre Darren Aronofsky film yeah and maybe that's maybe that's the best thing you can say is that yes at least you're going to come out you know, I've just given that at the start of this podcast I kind of sat there and went oh well yeah I saw um, I saw Doctor Strange and it was all right and bloody bloody blah and it was fine and I don't really have an opinion on it. Whereas, yeah, at least, at least yes, we both have definite opinions on Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, and uh, I, I mean, yeah, like I said, that and um, the Wrestler. I mean, it really feels mm. like a, a, a companion film to the Wrestler. Okay. Um, and I. I remember the day after the Oscars when um, uh, Sean Penn won the Oscar for, for Best Actor. I got a text from my mum saying, oh, poor old Mickey Rourke. <laughs> because because everyone was convinced that he was going to win the Oscar yeah. and that he really earned it for, because he's fantastic in the wrestling. And mm. then he didn't win. And then he just went back to making shitty straight-to-video <laughs> movies again. Mm. Oh no he, no, he did Iron Man 2. That was his comeback. Yeah. And then he just went to making you know, straight to 2B videos. Um, the third worst film of the year. It's getting tricky mm. now. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's quite kind of forms like a nice pair with the second worst, which I'll get on to. And that is Scream. Okay. Um, uh... Scream 5, effectively. Mm. Now... The original Scream, I think, is a classic. Yeah. I think it's it, it does everything that it's trying to do perfectly. It's really clever, it's re- it's quite scary, it's really funny, it's just the whole thing works. And they've tried to have lightning strike again every single time, and mm. each time it's been with you know, less imp- Scream 2 tried to do it for sequels, and that kind of worked because horror sequels do have tropes that you can play on. Scream 3 tried to do it for trilogies, which doesn't really work because trilogies don't really exist like that in horror films. Yeah. So that was kind of a false premise, and then they had to rewrite the script halfway through filming because the original version leaked, and I thought, well, then you're just compromising the whole film. Yeah, that's just stupid. For no no reason. And then there was a long break, and they did Scream 4, which was about sort of like reboots or like a legacy sequel. And again, that had a core of a decent idea, and it had some interesting bits, and it had some nice characters. But it and it was better than the third one, at least. Yeah. But it was this is yeah this is this is enough now. We're running out of ideas. Listening to you think talking about the kind of the tropes that the various it suddenly struck me that Scream Three should have been in three D. Yeah, I mean it was it came out in two thousand when three D as a concept was dead. And there are bits of it that, that will actually work. There's a bit where um, the killer throws a knife at someone's head and deliberately hits him with the wrong end to, um, in the head to knock him out. Okay. And you could and you could have done that as a 3D bit, and that would have yeah. been great. But you need to use I... the 3D in a really creative mm. way. 
to undermine the fact that it's we're playing on the idea that it's a horror movie in 3D. Mm. It's just obviously there's because Jaws three was 3D, wasn't it? Didn't they do a 3D? Um, how uh, not Halloween? Um, Friday the thirteenth. Friday the th- Friday the thirteenth, part three in three D. Part yeah. three, yeah, yeah. You see, that's it. It writes. It writes. I swear, it writes itself. All I need now is a time machine, and I'll go back in time and picture it. Yes, if, if it weren't for that tiny obstacle. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So now, with with effectively Scream Five, mm. we don't have the original writer Kevin Williamson. We don't have the original director Wes Craven. We have instead the Radio Silence. Um, filmmaking collective and James Vanderbilt writer of the amazing Spider-Man movies and okay. the concept is that the the events of the film are going to be a requel uh, a fan preferred mm. sequel um, because the recent Stab films which are the in-universe slasher movies based on the events of the first yeah. film have apparently hit a wall, Stab 8 was directed by Ryan Johnson and alienated a lot of the hardcore Stab fans so now a killer is trying to rewrite it and make his own version the way he wants it to be. Right. Um, which is a real stretch as a concept because it has nothing to do with horror movies. Mm. Um, it's to do with Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the satire doesn't work. The characters are really boring and unengaging. Um I, it's not much of a complaint to say there's not enough of the three original cast because I appreciate they want to bring in new actors and new characters hmm. as they did in the previous film which worked and this one doesn't so it showed that it, you can do this but the biggest problem with the film is that it's not funny hmm. it's not a comedy it doesn't have any humour in it that I could tell the original films up to number four they are comedies yeah. that are also scary the first film is laugh out loud funny a number of times. Hmm. Um, the, the film ne- is never able to justify its existence. It has this, because, because it lacks this humour, it has this really grim, depressing tone. It's really badly paced. There's like, suspense scenes that go on so long with characters who are completely oblivious that you end up just bored and waiting for them to be stabbed in the face. The, the the new cast is unengaging and uninteresting, and the whole thing just feels completely pointless. It just feels like a an exhumation of a dead franchise to make money. Yeah, and it's really disappointing. And they're making another one. In fact, as as we speak, as we're recording, Scream Six is out in less than a week. Good grief! And it has the same. Um, creative team it has all the, the surviving ca- characters from the from the previous film but not nev campbell nev campbell star of the original film has been in all the sequels is not in scream six not because she didn't want to do it but because they wouldn't pay her enough they okay. wouldn't pay the lead character in the series enough to be in the movie <sighs> hmm when the previous film was a massive success, and it really feels that they have no interest now. It's as we said before, their interest is only in making money and cutting mm. as many corners as they can. Yeah, and just kind of nickel and diming it because yeah, no, that's that's an odd. I'm tempted to say it's an odd creative decision, but it's not a, cre- a creative decision. It goes back to what we were saying before. It's just it's people making long films and sequels 
because they don't know what else to do. Yeah, and this is over two hours long. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, admittedly, really? it's like it's like two, it's like two hours two minutes. But oh, okay, but that's still too hor- long. Yeah, horror movies and comedies should have a hard out at two hours. There are mm. very few exceptions to that. Like I think Dawn of the Dead and Some Like It Hot are like the famous mm. exceptions to that rule. But generally, if you're going to have to, if you're sustaining a an emotional state in the audience that's as extreme as one you need for a comedy or a horror to really work, you can't sustain it for more than two hours. No. Airplane is under 90 minutes. Yeah. And well, it, can you imagine what Airplane would be like if it was two hours long? You'd be exhausted. I would be tell- It reminds me of, uh, I think it was, it was one of the Pythons talking about the process of editing and now for something completely different. And they did a test cut and the audience kind of stopped laughing about two thirds of the way through. So they shuffled everything around and the audience stopped laughing about two thirds. And they, they realised that it wasn't so much that... Mm-hmm. The stuff that they were putting in wasn't funny at that point. It was just that the audience were fed up with laughing. <laughs> Have I mistimed this? No, I haven't. I thought I I'd done know. it wrong. I thought I, I thought I'd uh, done film uh, the uh, uh, the films in the wrong order. I don't number think number five so. on the good li- number five on the good list is the menu. Okay. This is uh, it. It has a commonality with Glass Onion in that it's another eat the rich story. Okay, and it comes from the director of Ali G Interhouse. Right, um, Mark Mylod, who has gone on to be a very successful TV director. He's he's the lead director on Succession, so he's his career has gone in a really weird direction. Yeah, but. Um, the menu is about um, a very exclusive restaurant on a small private island where the uh, the set menu is, I, th- I think it's $1,500. Mm. And um, our main character, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, is going there with um, her, her, her boyfriend, played by Nicholas Holt. They're going for this meal to be cooked by uh, Chef Slovik, played by Ray Fiennes. This incredibly elaborate, beautifully made, beautifully constructed meal, and it's this. This environment is almost like a cult. Mm. <laughs> and the chef, the chef is like the chef is a leader of this cult, where the the other the, the line cooks live on the island. They live in this dormitory. They are completely subsumed to uh, creating these uh, works of art, which are then eaten by. Uh, rich jerks and we're introduced to the various other visitors for that evening there's a uh, an actor who's trying to get a uh, cable tv show uh, about traveling and eating off the ground played by john leguizamo who's kind of making fun of himself but uh, his career is i think doing a bit better than that Hmm. um there's um, uh, some uh, crypto bros and uh, like a politician and as the meal progresses, it turns out that Chef Slovik knows everything about all of these people. And he has plans of how this meal is going to go that are very, very specific. Um, it's a film about sort of the, the nature of artistry and how 
artists have to subsume everything about themselves in order to achieve greatness, but in doing so, completely annihilate their own personality and identity. And 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 it says quite categorically, this is a bad thing, <laughs> particularly mm. when you are serving this this beautifully crafted, carefully created molecular art to people who then just take photographs of it and eat it and then brag about it and don't care about the 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 artistic expression and the creation and the idea that that the chef creates as a, as an expression of their own personality and their own yeah. mind. Um, there's a scene where um, Taylor Joy's character wanders away and manages to escape. At, at one point, we're also told, "Oh yeah, and no one can leave the island, and by the end of the evening, you will all be dead." Right. And we're, and we're told this. We're, we're told this quite early on. <laughs> I don't. This this doesn't sound like a tipping situation, to be honest. Um, but um, Taylor Joy's character manages to find Slovik's office and finds cuttings from from throughout his career and Slovik is surprisingly open about coming from quite humble beginnings right. that he's from the mid he's from the midwest he started out as a line cook and she finds pride of place framed on his desk his employee of the month award from when he was a burger cook in a diner okay and there's a pic- and there's a picture of Ray Fines full head of hair with the apron on, cooking a burger in a grill, with a huge smile on his face. Hmm. And it's the whole point of the film that he, at one point, he loved cooking. He hmm. put everything into into making straightforward, really good, tasty, delicious meals. And as his art has become more complex, and he has become more lauded by rich jerks... Yeah. He has been forced to, like, eat his eat himself, eat his own personality, mm. and he can no longer live with the monster that he's become, running his kitchen like it's a death cult, and pandering to the whims of wealthy assholes who see a ticket to his restaurant purely as a status symbol. Yeah, it. I thought it was. Incredibly original, incredibly yeah. insightful and thoughtful, and again, it's saying this guy. I, what what Slovik wants to do is insane and horrible, and he's clearly there's something wrong there. But also, you understand why. You understand why he has developed this deranged plan because his motives are totally understandable and totally empathetic. Yeah. And it's a comedy that's really funny. Um, Nick Holt's character is just an, an obsessive foodie who is only interested in status, and he talk and he, he toadies up to Slovik about how what a great chef he is. And Slovik says, "Oh well, since you've studied my work so much, why don't you come into the kitchen and why don't you cook something for us? Come on, come on. No, what what would you like to cook? We've got everything here. Tell us what you want." And he. Is incredibly flustered, and mm. obviously he has absolutely no idea how to cook. I mean, and that's fine, but he goes on and on about oh the importance of food and flavour and mouthfeel, blah, blah blah blah. He doesn't have a clue what he's doing, and he yeah. winds up making this horribly undercooked mess, and is ridiculed in front of everyone else. 
And they think, well, yeah, he should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought it was a brilliant film. This an incredibly clever original satire. Hmm. Very merciless, I thought. Um, particularly as the film goes on, and it and it gets darker and darker and darker and weirder. Um, and by by the end, you're really wondering. Where is this going? And yet one hmm. of the the last major images of the film, prior to something absolutely terrible happening, is something that is absolutely pure Chris Morris, in that it's satire taken to its absolute extremes of making people dress as the food they're supposed to eat, and yet the food they're supposed to eat is a marshmallow s'more. So they've got marshmallow hats, and there's biscuit crumbled all over the ground, and they're dr- and they're dressed in these deranged costumes. Right. But they're all th- but they're all very sort of rich people who are having to take it very seriously yeah. because this is the this is the apotheosis of the culinary arts, and yet the chef is laughing at them because he knows yeah. that it's it's junk food that they take seriously because his name is on it. Yeah, okay. And are they aware that the chef is laughing at him by doing this, or are they just convinced it's all part of the experience? Well, that's the thing. Okay. He's, he never really lies about what he's doing, but they still right. think, ah, oh, but it's ah, oh, but this is all part of the experience. Mm. Even okay. when um, one of the... the, but the uh, What's his name? Sous chef comes out and slowly introduces and says, oh, he's this very, very talented sous chef. He wishes he could be a, as good as me. Unfortunately, he never will. He's he's a great chef. He will be you know, he could run his own restaurant, it would be very successful, but unfortunately, he won't he is not as gifted as I am. So, Matthew, what are you going to do about that? And Matthew, the sous chef, pulls out a gun and blows his brains out in the middle of the restaurant. In front of everyone. Right. <laughs> and oh yeah, that's that's like um that's like an entree between courses. Yeah. And again, they think, "Oh, this is oh, it's part of the experience. Oh, it's not really yeah. real." That yeah, but you literally just saw a man blow his brains out. I mean, that's mm. <laughs> uh, so yeah. It's and it's on Disney Plus. Okay, but I, I wasn't expecting that last bit. <laughs> yeah, Disney Plus in the UK has a much weirder remit because it incorporates all the 20th Century Fox stuff. So yeah, it's like sp- all the alien, all the alien movies are on there, and Ripley <laughs> mm. is a it- Disney princess now. Yeah, isn't it in? Um, it's America where all that stuff tends to go on Hulu, I think, isn't it? And uh, but, yeah, but yeah. Over here, they don't have that separation. It's just, yep, everything's on Disney. Okay. Uh, and the number four film of the year. Uh, it's another Oscar movie, Tar. Um, okay. Written and direct, written and directed by Todd Field, and it's the story of a. Uh, conductor-composer played by Kate Blanchett who is preparing to complete a cycle of recordings of Mahler's symphonies when things come out from her past that gradually erode and eventually destroy her reputation as one of music's great contemporary figures. But it's that that's not really an adequate description because so much of it is in the experience it's a brilliantly directed film because you spend the whole film in 
TARS headspace. Right. Um, there is a lot that you are not told that you have to work out for yourself in terms of the story, in terms of characterization, in terms of um, background elements and character history and character relationships. What's true, what isn't, what's really happening, what isn't. There are scenes where um, Lydia Tarr goes uh, for a run. She, you see her a recurring thing is seeing her exercising. And she goes for a run in the forest somewhere near Berlin where she lives. And in the distance we can hear a scream. And the sound is mixed in such a way that the audience, I think, is supposed to think it's coming from the next screen. Okay. But Lydia reacts and she hears it. And she tries to find the source of the scream and can't find it. But was that a real was that a real sound? Are we it's still inside her headspace, or is that a real someone actually screaming somewhere else? And it's the same with music, and it's the same with language. There are scenes where she's talking to her orchestra, um, say a fictitious Berlin orchestra, and she jumps repeatedly between English and German. And the the German isn't subtitled. Okay. Because Lydia knows what she's saying. Yeah. Um, I speak German, so yeah, I have a so, bit of a jump. Um, yeah. But and none of what she says in German is important in plot terms necessarily, and you can probably infer what she's saying from context. Yeah. But it's the experience of being in the head of this woman as things she has done in the past arrive in the present of. Uh, of seeing the downfall of someone yeah. from the highest heights to, I wouldn't say the lowest lows, but certainly the most humiliating for her. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, Kate Blanchett obviously does a great performance, and at this point, it's odds on that she's going to win Best Actress at the Oscars. Okay. Because it's a, it's a very complex character mm. that the audience has to read in a lot too. Um, But it's a complete work that Field uses camera technique and composition and editing choices and design choices all in service of exploring the inner life of this one character. And it's a really strange but compelling fascinating composition um, and it's two hours 40 minutes but I was never bored, I was never confused by what was happening it felt totally engaging for the mm. whole length of it and Julian Glover's in it oh good <laughs> um, I I'm kind of. It's funny, isn't it? How you you kind of. It, it, it's it's occasionally it's nice to know that that that, that some people are still going. Yeah, good. No, I'm pleased. Yeah, Who does Julian yeah. Gov? He plays uh, an aging conductor who is uh, something of a, a a colleague and something of a mentor to Lydia. Okay. Um, but <laughs> I felt like I had to jump up and say, "No, don't trust him. It's Scaroff." <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. It's yet another one of his fragments. Um, what sort of competition is Kate Blanchett up against for the Best Actress nomination? Um, just one moment, please. 
Okay. I just kind of assume you have all this stuff in your head, to be honest. Uh, the other nominees are Anna de Armas for Blonde. Okay, yeah. Andrea Riseborough for To Leslie. That was, a, that was a controversial nomination, because she's not been nominated for anything else. And it right. was a campaign by a lot of other actors um, to get her the nomination. So although okay. her performance may be great, I don't know, I haven't seen the film. Um, yeah. And people have said, oh, it's you know, terrible what she's done, and you know, they're, 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 they're cheating. It's not really cheating, but it's gaming the way mm. the Oscar campaigning system works yeah. in a way that feels dishonest. Yeah, because the director is very well connected, and he's exploited those connections for awards purposes, rather than letting the film stand and fall on its merits. Yeah, although that's how campaigns work. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? One, the trouble is, once you create a system that is accepted that something works this way, you can't really be that outraged when people walk in and just start using the system for their own ends. Yeah. At that point, it's, uh, a yep. fe- you know, it's a feature, so yeah. And the other two nominees are Michelle Williams for The Fablemans. Okay. And Michelle Yeoh for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Okay. Well, yes, obviously I know who I'd give it to, but there you go. Um, and yeah, as I say, Brendan Fraser is probably the, the tip to win Best Actor. Yeah. Although um, Austin Butler as and in Elvis and Colin Farrell in The Banshees of Inner Sharon are possibles i would say yeah. so it's uh, quite a tight race there hmm. so the second worst film of the year um this one i mean i really shouldn't have been surprised i was hopeful i thought maybe this time it's going to be different maybe this time you know all the stars will align and they'll get it right and it won't just be the same idiotic crap that it usually is but the second worst film of the year was Texas Chainsaw Massacre the first two Texas Chainsaw Massacre films I think are absolutely terrible the second film in particular is the worst film I've ever seen yeah I I was trying to remember if it was you that that has described the first film as barely a film I don't think that was me Okay. it does sound like something I'd say yeah that's what I was thinking yeah and I've I've seen a number of the sequels and they're variable in quality. And I, I think the central idea is very strong for a mm. horror movie. It's quite simple and yet it allows different ideas and different interpretations and different directions. There's a there's so much potential there. Yeah. And this now is a direct sequel to the original film. Okay. Uh in which in the sense that it's also a rip-off of the uh, new Halloween films. Right. In that they bring back the final girl from the original movie, um, but not played by the same actor this okay. time. Because um, they, they, I mean, they brought back Jamie Lee Curtis, um, but they didn't bring back um, Marilyn Burns, although she does get a cameo. Instead, they hired someone else, and she's barely in the film. And she has almost no impact on anything. Right. Um, it's about a group of hipsters who go to this town in Texas and they want to turn it into a new Williamsburg, even though there is already a new Williamsburg in Texas and it's called Austin. Mm. Um, but uh, Leatherface is there. And uh, at one point there's a scene with a party bus full of influencers and Leatherface comes on with his 
chainsaw running and he's going to turn them all into um, uh, pies. Yeah. And um, they, they all start filming him and putting him on TikTok so that he could be cancelled. Right. And um, in my video review, I did quote um, Klaus Kinski in describing this film as moronically shitty. Um, yeah it's it's incredibly badly paced and surprisingly boring and it's it's an hour and 20 minutes it's it's really short objectively but subjectively it lasts forever it sounds i mean it sounds like if i describe it as a revenge film i don't necessarily mean in the kind of classic sense but in that sense that, that that somebody's gone oh i hate those hipsters i'm going to put them in a film where they all get chainsawed but it actually sounds like it's even more sort of dumb than that if it's just that as you say they're all trying to get Leatherface cancelled it aspires to anything as creative as what you just described I mean that's the thing the concept of Texas Chainsaw Massacre allows you a lot of flexibility you can do all kinds Mm. of things with it it's just that they keep the thing they do, they keep doing with it, is making terrible movies. Yeah, <laughs> yes. It's there's um, something there's something brilliant about the title. It's such a a good collect. You know, it, chainsaw is obviously you, you, that's the kind of word that piques your interest. But then it's not just chainsaw, but it's combined with the word massacre. There's it's literally just something about the the combination and t- the fact that it takes place in Texas as well of all places. It's a brilliant combination of words because you kind of almost want to go. It's it's like the 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 original film was what the seventies. It's like seventies click. Yeah, it's like seventies clickbait in a way. You almost feel like you have to go and see it. Yeah, I mean it's pure like drive-in grindhouse stuff. Mm. Yeah, the poster sells the movie. Yeah, I yeah. mean the original poster that it was like a picture of Leatherface about to carve someone up on a meat hook and. The tagline was "Who will survive and what will be left of them?" I mean, you know, that's that's pure, yeah. pure grindhouse Roger Corman stuff. Um, and you can do a lot with it that that retains that that nasty, mm. you know, horrible flesh tearing brutalism, but also can be about something. I mean, the ha- the new Halloween movies really try, try to be about something, yeah. each of them individually as well as collectively. And I think they really worked. Mm. Um, and so whoever whoever it is who owns the rights these days decided they could do the same thing with Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then absolutely fucked it. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's an absolutely terrible film. It's boring characters, horrible direction. A lot of the time you can't even see what's supposed to be going on. It's just awful on almost every level. Um, and yet it's still not the worst film I saw this year. Yes, that's quite an achievement. Yeah, I was I was startled as well because it was it came out in something like February last year, and I thought, oh, this is clearly going to be the worst film I see this year, <laughs> and it held that position for a very long time. Okay. <laughs> um, third worst film of the year is some, another one that you've actually seen. Oh, hang on. Uh, I think it's the last, one, the last one left on the list of films that you've seen. And do you oh, want to tell me... us what it is? Uh, no, I'm confused. Third, you, so you said third worst. I'm not sure if I misheard third you. Best. Third best. Oh, third best. Third best. Gotcha. Right. Oh, sorry. Third best. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I think the only one we haven't talked about is everywhere, everything, everywhere, all at once. So I'm going to guess it's that one. It is. <laughs> yeah. Um. As the, this 
of the limited selection of films I saw last year, I think... Uh, so I'm looking at it going, is this film of the year or is it Glass Onion? Uh, I, no, I think, I, I genuinely, I thought this film was absolutely fantastic. I, it's the classic example of a film where somebody goes, oh, this is a film that's a bit, this is odd, this is not, this is not what you'd normally expect. And I kind of went into it knowing there was something about alternate universes or something... And I sat there for 20 minutes and watched the story of a family struggling with the running of their laundrette. And there was a point 20 minutes in when I went, well, this isn't going the way I expected to, but I'm emotionally invested. And and that was the thing that really got me was I could have sat there quite cheerfully and watched a film that was just about that family struggling with their income taxes and the running of their laundrette. I was that involved with the characters. And then, of course, it goes absolutely berserk, and it's even better. But, yeah, yeah, a, a, a terrific film. Yeah, it's it, it's still about these characters and their day-to-day mm. struggles, but it's also about the destruction of the cosmic multiverse yes. and uh, issues of Asian-American identity and issues of personal growth and mother-daughter relationships and... It it lives up to its name. I mean, mm. I I remember saying that it that a lot of directors when they make their first film commit the sin of acting like they're not going to get a second. So they put all their ideas into it, and yes. the result is this this sort of unengaging mash of gibberish that doesn't work. Mm. Daniels have made um, at least one film, uh, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Yeah. Made at least one film together. Another uh, Shinet, I think, made another film on his own, and I think that they had the same idea that they're probably not going to get to do another film after this one. So they'll just put all their ideas in, do everything they've always wanted to do, and yet it coheres. Mm. It is a it it has such range and breadth and scale, but it all fits together. Yeah, and it's absolutely astonishing. That it's as coherent as it is. Um, yes, yeah, get, a, a bit like Glass Onion. There's a lot of stuff going on, but you never really lose. It's always clear. That everything that kind of happens illustrates the central themes of the film. Yeah, I, I, I genuinely, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, I I did find the resolution at the end of the story, which I won't mention. I did find it disappointing at the time, but the more I think about it. The more I think, actually, no, it it works perfectly as the the kind of summation of the whole concept of the movie that mm. um, across all of these multiverses and all of these relationships the character has have, one thing that is consistent is the compassion of one person for another and the, yeah. the love of one person for another, and that is the glue that holds everything together and creates meaning. And that gives our relationships and our lives meaning. It's ultimately, I mean, with a, for a film with that title, the point of it is actually about the meaning of life. Yes. <laughs> which is kind of, you, you'd feel disappointed if it weren't about that. Yeah. Um, but it's, it has such incredible creativity. It looks and sounds absolutely incredible that there's so much, so much visually 
so many different ideas, so many different like the the, the costumes that change all the way through the 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 kung fu fights which we haven't even mentioned that it's also a martial arts movie i was listening the other day to an interview and uh, i'm going to get my apologies in advance because i'm terrified i'm going to mangle his name ki hoi kwan um i listened to an interview with him the other day and he talked about the sequence where he's got like the little sort of uh bum bag bum bag that's the word i was looking for um and a, a technically astonishing sequence on screen. And I think they took him to one side and said because they had limited time and limited money, they, they, they told him they could only afford to do a certain number of takes of each bit of that particular fight. And I would have, you know, I would have just struggled, under, crumbled under the stress of trying to go, oh, you know, this move, then this move. But, but it's flawless on screen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely astonishing. And... Yes, as far as I'm concerned, give Michelle Michelle Yao and uh, Ki Hoi Kwan both the oct- uh, both the Oscars because they are both absolutely br- they're brilliant in this. Um, I've uh, named it as both best adapted be- best original screenplay of the year because mm. I mean, frankly, there's no contest. Yeah, and also runner up for best supporting actress for Stephanie Su. Yeah, that's true. Um, who plays the the daughter and. Uh, winds up being the keystone of existence mm. itself, um, but again, a, a very multi-layered, complex character who goes off in bizarre directions, but is completely empathetic and completely understandable. Um, yeah. It's it's really an incredible achievement. Yeah, um, and um, I, I'm hopeful that it it will win big at the Oscars because it's mm. nominated. In, I think eleven categories. Um, yeah, and in, including I think four acting nominations for uh, Michelle Yeoh, Ki Hui Kwan, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Stephanie Sue. Yeah, it's it's really incredible. Yeah, I, it's it's nice to it's nice to looking down the you know I, I think I I think I've seen eight films when I, when I add up everything on my list because two of them didn't count um, and. Uh, it's nice to have two films that I genuinely feel like I can't say enough good things about them. Um, you know, this and Glass Onion are both uh, are both wonderful, and to get them both in the same year seems like some kind of aligning of the planets or something. Hmm. Well, for me, that was only the third best film of the year. Mm. Well, I mean, that, 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 that which you know, I can't wait to hear what the next two are. <laughs> um. My number two film of the year is something that I've seen very few people talk about. I've seen very little discussion of it. And it was something that really only attracted me because it had one specific actor in it. And that's Benediction. Okay. Um, it's the story of Siegfried Sassoon, the noted World War I oh, yes. um, peace, peace protester and poet. And it's written and directed by Terence Davies. Um, and it's the story of... Uh, his life in in two periods his um his protest against the the conduct uh of the first world war and that mm. he was sent to a mental hospital um for it and and later sent and later demanded to be sent back to the front uh in solidarity with those uh, enlisted men who didn't have the luxury that he had of the connections that that got him away to safety mm. 
and then his relationships uh, in the 1920s as um, a man who was not openly gay, but as as reasonably openly as you could be in the 1920s yeah. during the that whole period, and his relationships with people like Ivan Novello, um, getting married in a marriage of convenience, and then later in life, um, now played by Peter Capaldi, okay. um, how that the the relationship with his wife has has soured into mutual loathing and his troubled relationship with his own son and his conversion to catholicism uh, uh, partly out of guilt at failing to achieve as much as he hoped in um, in saving men's lives during the war mm. it's a very impressionistic film it uses original world war 1 footage and poetry to weave this kind of dreamscape together. Some of it is some of the scenes are films of quite conventionally uh, dramatically. Others are much more um, almost like phantasmagorical. Mm. And it's a, a very compelling consuming story. Um, Again, it's difficult to talk about because it's it's a very experiential thing. It, a lot of it feels a bit like an art installation of having right. all these different elements merged together to form a whole. And it's a very humanist story of a man who tried to achieve something great but couldn't, tried to live as he wanted but couldn't, who was blocked from achieving everything he wanted because of the society he was living in. Mm. Um, and doesn't sugarcoat him either. I mean, the the older Sassoon is really quite an unpleasant person. But you understand why. Because, because of everything he's been through. And he's now quite misanthropic and quite unpleasant. But for a good reason. Mm. And it shows tremendous compassion and sensitivity towards him because of the man he was and the life he's lived. Yeah. It was a a really very moving film and really quite remarkable. Uh, that, as I said in the the video review, I mean I had I'd only seen one previous Terence Davies film which I saw for the exact same reason because it had an actor in it who I liked in other stuff. Apparently and that was Gillian Anderson. It was Gillian Anderson in The House of Mirth and I thought it was boring as hell. <laughs> okay. Um, so, the worst film of the year. Mm. Now, we've already talked about um, the, uh, the Eat the Rich films we've had this year. I yes. said there were three that I, that I watched we were going to talk about. We've had Glass Onion and The Menu. And this last one is a multi-Oscar nominated film. Oh dear! Uh, just check, just checking, checking my list. Nominated for three Oscars, including Best Picture, and it's the worst Best Picture film I saw since that deranged Churchill picture. Oh, okay. Uh, it's Ruben Oslin's Triangle of Sadness. Hmm. I recognise the title actually. Uh, I think I remember thinking the title was not sounded vaguely nonsense at the time, but uh, 
It's about a group of wealthy people on a yacht trip. The staff have been instructed to um, cater to their every whim, do everything that they ask um, because uh, of the tip that they hope to receive. Right. And the, the, the rich people are all incredibly stupid, all incredibly selfish. Um, and um, someone insists that um, all the crew go for a swim, so they have to leave all the seafood out, um, and the seafood goes bad, and everyone gets ill, and that happens at the same time as they're in a storm, and then pirates attack. And this is, that, this is, this, this is the first half of the film. Right. The second half of the film, the, the few survivors of the pirate attack and the shipwreck wash up on a desert island. Okay. And the one surviving member of the crew, uh, a cleaner, takes charge because she's the only one with any useful life skills. Right. So the first half of the film is this ridiculously pathetic sub-adolescent political tract that feels mm. like it was written by Rick from The Young Ones <laughs> about how rich people are bad and, oh, here's a, here's a Russian guy who made his money from selling shit and here's an English couple who run a, um, an armaments company. Uh, they're basically arms traders. And do you know what their names are? Winston and Clemmy. Oh, how incredibly subtle. What incredibly insightful and original satire. I could sh- I could eat alphabetti spaghetti and shit a better script than this. <laughs> um, it tries to be uh, funny with like, scenes of rich people throwing up everywhere, and it just made me think of how much more enjoyable Jackass is, <laughs> because in that you have people doing silly things and throwing up and crapping in public and whatever, and there's no pretension at being it being anything other than silly nonsense. And that's what makes it funny, that it's just unpretentious nonsense. Hmm. And here saying, ah, no, but the fact that the fact that all these people are throwing up on each other, ah, that has great metaphorical value. And it doesn't. It's, it is, I mean, remember what I said about Don't Worry Darling, how I said it was high on the scent of its own farts. Yeah, yeah. This is a film that eats its own shit and asks for more. Yeah. Again. And then the second, and then the second half of the film, I know, I know you're ready to say something. I'm not finished yet, Chris. Sorry. Oh, okay. No, no. The go sec- for it. The second half of the film <laughs> is a retread of the Admirable Crichton, which, if you haven't seen it, Chris or listener, mm. it's about um, a Victorian household on a ship. They they get shipwrecked, land on desert island, and the butler, who's the only one with any practical knowledge, takes charge, and then they develop this ideal society where the butler is a benevolent dictator and he treats everyone well and everyone gets all the stuff they need and they live perfectly on this desert island until they're rescued and have to go back to modern society and how is that going to change their relationships and class conflicts and it's not a wildly complex film but it has that basic idea and it runs with it a bit and it's pretty good and Triangle of Sadness does exactly the same thing in a much more childish, badly thought out way, and demands that you hail it as a work of genius. Right. It's absolute dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm so sorry. You were saying. 
No, I, I think whatever I was going to say was just uh, uh, probably wasn't going to add any extra illumination. Again, <sighs> keep coming back to Don't Look Up, where there seems to be this, uh, as you say, it's the Winston and Clammy thing. It's full of stuff that you can see, you, you can, you, you, you know, you occasionally get these moments in, in films and television where you can sort of see like the writing team or whatever, they're all like high-fiving themselves and then they go home for the day because it's not going to get any better than Winston and Clemmy. And yeah, that's, it's, it's the old bit from the Armando Iannucci shows of the, mm, um, it's the, the room of TV writers. We're so good at television. We're so good at yeah, television. Exactly. Yeah, it's that. And it's it's Ruben Osland who... I, I mean, I saw his previous film, Force Majeure, which was very good. Okay. Uh, which that, that was remade in an American version called Downhill. And that was in one of my previous worst film of the year lists. That's the one and about this the is, avalanche, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is, and this is worse than the remake yeah. of that film. That's how bad this is, and it's it's well over two and a half hours. It's it's a director writer who has absolutely no sense of discipline, who has no sense of proportion, who has no sense of um, political reality or political content because it's so. I mean, the only major member of the cast is Woody Harrelson who plays the captain of the ship and he's a Marxist and he acknowledges the irony that he is a Marxist who works for rich people and he gets in political debates with the Russian capitalist and we're meant to find this all very clever and funny and it Mm. just looks like you found a big book of quotes and you're copying bits out of it it's it it tests me Chris it tests me Oh, I have, to, I have to have a moment to gather myself. Mm. Yes, yeah, happy films. Oh, yes, let's look out of the window. But hang the, on, um, did you say this is nominated for... This is, it's got Oscar nominations. Nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay. <sighs> I'm just... I, I'm sitting here looking at the... Um, the film poster. And the film poster is... One of those diabolical things where it's it's designed. Oh, look at this! The captain's standing in a hot tub, clutching a bottle of champagne, but he's fully dressed. That's weird, isn't it? It's like no, it just looks stupid. And half the boat's on fire for some reason because it's probably a ref. It's probably satirical or something. Yeah, well, the boat no, does. The the, yeah. the boat is attacked and sinks. Yeah. So that is the, the, kind of the poster makes me hate the film. <laughs> then its work is done. Yeah. The best film of the year is um, one that has been very controversial uh, to the extent that I have argued with friends about it. Hmm. And it was a film that you said you were going to try and watch, yes. but instead you decided to go to the pub. Yes. And I think that is an, a, a perfectly valid choice. <laughs> uh, okay. Because um, my mother was interested in watching the film because of the subject matter. Hmm. And she started watching it earlier in the week. And she got about halfway through and decided that was enough. Wow. And she told me that when it started, it felt like a porn film. 
And I thought, wow, that's kind of a judgment on me because I would recommend mm. it to her. And it's Blonde, yeah. uh, Andrew Dominic's um, impressionist biography of Norma Jean Baker. Um, it's, I think, forms the third part of his trilogy of films deconstructing the fame of public figures. Right. After Chopper and um, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, this looks at Marilyn Monroe, and it's the story of Norma Jean Baker having to exist as the construct of Marilyn Monroe, mm. and the way that this creation was exploited and abused by everyone around her. I think a lot of people feel that it's... Um, sexist or misogynist, I feel the opposite. I think that not that it's empowering, but it's mm. very compassionate because it's showing how sexist and misogynist her environment was, and it has yeah. tremendous sympathy for the suffering that she underwent. Yeah. Um, I found it to be an incredibly sensitive and adult film. Um, because it, it it asks a lot of the audience. It's it's very explicit in its sexuality and in its violence, and I can understand absolutely why so many people have taken against it because it's it's doing stuff that you don't expect a film like this to do. Mm. But also, it's taking the the image of Marilyn Monroe and systematically destroying it. It is breaking down this old Hollywood fantasy of her as the. The, the lost soul that the you know the 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 movie star who mm. uh, you know we lost at such a young age and it's saying no this is why because she was systematically her whole life even by her own mother the subject of violence and abuse within a patriarchal society society in general hollywood mm. film sets you know you can you can you can telescope it in and out and because it strips away this the the imagined Instagram version of her life of the glamour and the beauty and all of that, and and is exploring the the raw brutal reality, even though it's in a very dreamlike uh, impressionist style, I think people really didn't like having that fantasy taken away mm. and being told that thing you worship is the creation of rapists. Yeah. Um, Anna de Armas uh, in the lead role is astonishing. Um, there is a slight flutter with her accent now and then, as she's Cuban and and uh, Baker obviously wasn't. Yeah. But she completely embodies the persona, and the film is about what it was like to live through her eyes and to experience what she experienced and that is communicated so perfectly and so clearly it is an absolutely astonishing performance and my choice for leading performance of the year um, best director as well for Andrew Dominic who does so much to carefully modulate how far he can go because it goes a long way in in this explicitness in terms of not just her work life, but her personal life, her relationship with her mother, as I said, her marriage to Joe DiMaggio, which um, 
dissolves into violence. Her marriage to Arthur Miller, which falls apart when she suffers a miscarriage. It's it's mm. only ever sympathetic. I think that's that's something that I would say people didn't pick up on, but maybe wasn't clear to people yeah. that it's it only ever cares. It only ever wants better things for her. And it and it's feels sad that it didn't. It doesn't indulge in any kind of um conspiracy theories about her death. It yeah. does come up with a an I think probably a fictional narrative which does lead her towards um suicide. But it feels plausible and believable and doesn't do anything stupid like Oh, the FBI knocked her off. Or yeah, anything yeah. stupid like that. Um, and the film has many moments uh, where she's shown happy and satisfied. There's a scene where she does a uh, a reading of a script with a an audience, and, and Arthur Miller meets her for the first time. And Miller's clearly thinking, "Oh God, we've got Marilyn Monroe. She's going to be an absolute waste of space. She's going to be awful." And then by the end, everyone's applauding her, and it's clear that her performance was astonishing. Yeah. And the relationship she has with Miller is shown to be very happy and idyllic, and they they have a, a, a meeting of minds. Uh, Baker was, or not highly educated, but very very smart. She read Dostoevsky. She had, mm. was a great lover of Russian literature. Um, not enough has been said of her genuine intelligence, only in terms of her status as a movie star and her status as a sex symbol. Yeah. Um. I think it's almost an explosive film in terms of deconstructing the idea of old Hollywood glamour through this through this prism. Um, I was absolutely magnetised to it for its considerable runtime, um, and yeah, I think it's a masterpiece. I loved it, but you decided to go to the pub. Yes, well, I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, if if you looked at it and you thought, ah, I don't think this is for me, that is absolutely fine. Yeah, it's not for everyone by any means. It's, I mean, it's almost explicitly saying this is not for you, probably. Mm. And you know, my mum turning it off halfway through because she wasn't comfortable with it. That's yeah, that's interesting. That's that, that's Walking- interesting. Walking out of a movie is a perfectly valid response. Mm. No one is under any obligation to watch it all the way through. Particularly if you're watching it on Netflix at home where you've already paid for it. Yeah. And you don't don't even feel like you have to get your money's worth out of the ticket. So that's fine. But I think a lot of people are misinterpreting the film or under a misapprehension of what I think it's supposed to be about. Because it's, it's not the trashing of Marilyn Monroe yeah. that they describe it as. It's the eulogy for Norma Jean Baker. Yeah. It's a, it's a I mean obviously again haven't haven't seen it, so I'm on shaky ground by trying to talk about it. But the way you've kind of talked about people saying it is misogynistic and stuff it, it, kind of what it immediately vaguely makes me think of is you can describe Blazing Saddles is you can describe Blazing Saddles as a racist film, because it is, but it's not a 
racist film in the sense that, say, The Birth of a Nation is. And it sounds to me like the same thing. You know, it's perfectly possible for Blonde to be a misogynistic film without actually condoning that misogyny, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's a yeah. it's a film it's a film it's a film about the misogyny and is yeah. explicit in portraying it in the same way that Blazing Saddles is explicit in portraying racism. Yeah. But the film itself never condones it. Um, just as the the film is always on the side of Bart, the sheriff, mm. who is always the smartest and cleverest and wittiest guy in the room. Yeah. So the but film it, is never less than completely compassionate and sensitive towards Norma Jean Baker. Yeah. But at the same time, it is, of course, it's perfectly acceptable for people to say they don't like it because of the misogyny, because the the misogyny is there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I can see I can see how it could, could absolutely just turn somebody off from your description of it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's absolutely fair, in the same way that, uh, you know, you might find Blazing Saddles very uncomfortable because mm. it features very bluntly, openly racist characters. They're yeah. ridiculed within the context of the story, but if you find... You know, hearing the N word is just too much for you. That's a completely reasonable response. Yeah, and no one would blame you, and I doubt Mel Brooks would blame you. So, that's the selection of films for the year. Um, hmm. It's it's a mixed bag, I think, because there's nothing that's like a big blockbuster or anything on there, and that, that there has been in hmm. the past. I think if if Glass Onion had stayed in cinemas longer, I think it would have done very well. I was because kind of su- it was a, it was it was apparently doing gangbusters during the one week that it had a, a special release. Yeah, I was slightly surprised when you said you seen it in the cinema because, to my mind, it's an it's a Netflix film. Um, but it never occurred to me that it had had a, a limited theatrical release at all. It had a one week cinema release um, in the UK and the US and probably other countries as well around Thanksgiving, mm. and it's- it it did very well. But then Netflix said, nope, that's it, one week. And then it was off the screen, and yeah. then it came out on Netflix just before Christmas. Yeah. And it was it was our Christmas film. Uh, no, sorry, thinking back, it wasn't our Christmas. It was our New Year's film. Um, our Christmas film was some like it hot, because we apparently just gave up on the terrestrial schedules and went with whatever BBC Two was showing. Um, but, yeah, yeah, and I think it got a slightly odd... Glass Onion got a slightly odd reaction from... I, I don't really know what my parents were expecting, um, given that, they, that they've apparently seen and not liked Knives Out. Um, but they, they sat through it all the way to the end. I don't know if that counts as an achievement. <laughs> well, I mean, if they, were, if they were to walk out because they don't like it, that's fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've got... Uh... A selection of things coming out this year mm. of of various mixtures. As I say, it seems to largely be a mix of low budget or independent weird movies and the next instalments in big blockbuster franchises. Yeah. So, like Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, Spider Man Across the Spider Verse, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, Mission Impossible: oh, Dead Reckoning yeah. Part One. Oh God, that's right. Um, They've split a Mission Impossible film in two, haven't they? I'm sure it'll make a billion dollars, but and there's there's something about splitting it in two. I, I'm trying to think of a, poli- a, a, a polite way to put it. People don't go to see the Mission Impossible films for the story. So the idea of splitting it in two films with a cliffhanger into part two just seems baffling. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Um, I mean, the they still haven't matched the first one, as far as I'm concerned, which had a really good story. Yeah. 
Um, there's, sorry, keep going. Keep going with the list. We've got we've got some other odds and ends. There's um, uh, Pearl, a horror film lauded by Martin Scorsese, okay. about a um, 1920s farm girl who wants to become a big star, and it's made in the style of a um, MGM musical. Okay, that's um, intriguing. It's a it's a prequel to a film that I watched for this year called X which is about a porn shoot on a farm in the 70s, and this is about the old lady who lives on the farm, but when she was young. Right. And apparently, it's made by the same people, with, a, with a, the same actress, but is apparently totally different in style and tone. Right. And I'm, I mean, I'm very intrigued. What did you think of, of um, X? It was fine. <laughs> okay. It kind of, it kind of, what it was, yeah, it was a slasher yeah. movie set on a farm about a porn shoot, and it was kind of, yeah, mm, this is okay. Yeah. Um, Brandon Cronenberg has a new film out called Infinity Pool, which uh, sounds very J.G. Ballard. Um, yeah. We've got a, a, a horror comedy about uh, Renfield, um, Dracula's acolyte, uh, okay. with Dracula played by Nicolas Cage. Ooh, okay. I could go either way. Um, there's a new Evil Dead film. Um, actually, there's lots of horror and vampire stuff. Yeah. Um, there's even... Last night, the uh, last voyage of the Demeter, which is adapted from one chapter of Bram Stoker's Dracula, about the um, ship crossing the North Sea with Dracula's coffin inside. That could—that's the best bit of the book. Um, that could be—that's got potential to be. Into, I mean, the trouble is, it's obviously—it's uh, yeah, a bit of a closed story. But yeah, that could be interesting. It's one of those. It's um, one of those films that will de- depend entirely on the kind of the, the tone and the success of the, the the atmosphere. I suspect. We've uh, got. Oh, we having done um, Exorcist. Sorry, having. I've given it away now. Hmm. Having done Halloween and um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, legacy sequels, we now got an Exorcist one. Right. Um, for which they've brought back Ellen Burstyn. Okay. Which, yep. Uh, that well good, known. Which was yeah. must have been careful because she's about 90 now um, we've got uh, the young Willy Wonka musical oh god ah now that was what I said Sorry. but it's from the makers of it's from the makers of the Paddington films right okay that's but but the trouble was and, what, the, mu- was it? and the and the songs are by Neil Hannon of the Divine Comedy okay because what it immediately made me think of was that bloody awful subplot in um Tim Burton's oh, Charlie yeah. and the Chocolate Factory. It's like, why does Willy Wonka run a chocolate factory? What's what made him? And you say, I don't care. Um, so yeah, I oh, know. Okay, no, that's fine. It sounds like he's got a much better pedigree than I was expecting. We all thought that the Paddington film was going to be absolutely awful, and mm. then it turned out to be a delight. Yes. So I am I am prepared for the same kind of thing. And we've got a few other oddities like Wes, Wes Anderson's got two films coming out this year. Okay. One's about uh, called Asteroid City, about a um, stargazing convention in the desert, hmm. and the other is a Roald Dahl adaptation, the wonderful story of Henry Sugar. Oh, that's interesting. Starring huh. Benedict Cumberbatch. Okay, that's slightly less interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a it's a, a, a all kind of mixed bag. Um, hmm. Is this the year that? Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer film comes out. Yeah, which I'm skipping because he oh, okay. tried to kill his audience with Tenet. Yeah, um, very good. Yeah, if you release a, 
if you force mm. a studio to release a big budget blockbuster in the middle of a global pandemic and are then surprised when it's not a big hit and yet yeah. your audience all gets ill and infects their family members, you can go fuck yourself. Yeah, that was particularly stupid, admittedly. And it wasn't even that good. Yeah, yeah. So any anything else on the list that uh, strikes you as of particular note? Uh, no, as I say, I'm in, I'm, I, I appreciate that, that you've got well-justified reasons for not liking Christopher Nolan, but I am intrigued by Oppenheimer. I think partly because he, th- he's been going around claiming that they worked out a non-CGI way to represent the Trinity test on screen. And apart from actually detonating an atomic bomb, I can't really work out how you do it. Any explosion big enough will form a mushroom cloud. So as long as they've, yeah, as long as it's subnuclear, and it it could be that they've figured out a way of of creating that with, you know, like the the way Aaron Darren Aronofsky keeps doing visual effects, which is sort of injecting dye into water and things like that, filming filming atoms. At the risk of going off on a slight tangent and continuing my unsettling obsession with nuclear war um, I remember reading a description of the Trinity test because of course it, it took place at dawn and they described one of the things that people described was the colours of the mushroom cloud um, a bit of a bummer because they only ever filmed the test in black and white <laughs> so I uh, look forward to meeting you again in mm. the ether uh, yeah. this time next year and uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk about how absolutely brilliant this new exorcist film is yeah i mean i'm sure it'll be i'm sure there's no reason to be disappointed oh, there's, well there's no reason not to be excited i mean after the last uh two exorcist films which were both variations on the same thing that had to be reshot by different people what could possibly go wrong thanks to chris for making time for this recording Cinema Limbo is on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Acast with over 110 episodes available, so please download, review, and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop up any in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, remember, happy new film year! listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.